The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 56, and we're back for some uh, more noir and crime films we're going to be looking at. I'm your host, the candy-colored clown they call the Sandman, Lee Russell. Uh, I have my co-host here. I can't figure out if he's a detective or a pervert. Daniel Harper, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, and uh, does it have to be either or? Well, that's what the movie presents anyway. you got right. a choice. Well, well I, I think we'll talk about that, but yeah, let's go. Okay. We have a special guest. Uh, I feel a little intimidated here because I'm going to have two people who are actually articulate talking, and it's going to make me even look stupider, but uh, goddamn, he's one suave fucker. Jack Graham, how are you doing, sir? Hi there. Um, in Russia, they look after each other, but on this podcast, you're on your own. That's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. One for, the, one for the Blood Simple reference. You know, we were yeah. all thinking Blue Velvet, but uh, yeah, I like it. I just like he picked up my uh, play it by ear joke in the uh, Facebook chat. Yeah, yeah, I was the only one that got that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got it. I just, I groaned privately, you know. Oh, um, you, you rose above it, you mean? Mother I don't rise above anything on this podcast, Jack. <laughs> it's, uh, it's clearly, I'm the one bringing the podcast down, and uh, I, I'm going to do that later today. Don't worry. We're going we're gonna to be in the gutter for the entire time. It's just going to happen. <laughs> Great. Well, I picked the right week to come then, didn't I? Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. We're glad to have you. Been, li- been listening to your podcast now for a while and uh, reading some of your stuff on, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Shabogan Graffiti? Nope. Sorry, you got that wrong. <laughs> oh, well, shit. <laughs> yeah, you can pronounce it any way you like. I don't really care. Uh, the, the pronunciation I use is Shabogan Graffiti. Okay. But it's, it's part of the joke. Don't worry. All right. You do the uh, wonderful Shabcast that uh, Daniel's uh, lovely wife was just on, and you guys were doing Labyrinth and <laughs> Black Dark, Dark Crystal. Crystal. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that was a great episode. I'm really, uh, really proud of that one. Yeah. All I right. I think I'm going to steal Shana from Daniel and just have her as my regular co-host instead. Well, isn't that what you do, though? You go to other podcasts and basically either take them over or raid them for your own? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Jack Shane and I are polyamorous. We share. You know, oh. there's no there's no stealing. It's it's a sharing economy. You know. I, I I don't get that. I'm strictly strictly monogamous. So oh, okay. yeah, I can't, be, can't be doing with any of that stuff. See, I'm 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 very monogamous. So um, if you actually steal Daniel away, I'm just gonna have to grin and bear it. You know? <laughs> well, I thought maybe you'd hire a hitman to kill us both. <laughs> <laughs> that too. That too. <laughs> lots of lots of talk of uh, fidelity and uh, non-fidelity in today's movies, I think. So uh, yeah. Yeah. So we first we have uh, two comments we need to get to, and they're both from Henry. First off, he says, uh, "Great job on Kiss of Death re- on the Kiss of Death review." Uh, he says it's one of his dad's favorite movies, and uh, having been a decade or so since I've seen it, I'm gonna have him fire up the DVD next time we're down. That said, he asks me to recommend Chinatown. Any chance uh, of that breaking into your current streak? 
probably not going to do Chinatown this time around. As, as much as we want to do it, we want to kind of limit our uh, series to about mid-April or so, so um, we're all already sort of over our queue as far as that's concerned, but as soon as we pick it up, we will do Chinatown, promise. He says, when you get back to doing horror, any chance of some more Hammer vampire films? You've dabbled in Dracula, for better or worse, but they've got more to offer. If you want to do something a little spicier, might I recommend the infamous Karnstein trilogy. I think it's got a lot to offer, and for a few different reasons that I don't entirely want to spoil. However, I will tease Daniel that you'll get to see a young Ronnie, uh, and that's a Doctor Who reference, I believe, is it not? The Ronnie? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Doing things they'd never show on Doctor Who. Uh, I'll also say that beyond sexy lesbian vampires, Twins of Evil is my wife's favorite Hammer vampire movie. Right on. Um, I, I have seen a lot of the uh, sexier Hammer stuff back when you know when they were trying to catch up with everybody else in the late 70s or so. And yeah, we can definitely get into that. I, I'm, I know Paul will definitely be up for that. He says, if you go that route, you may also wish to consider the unofficial fourth movie, Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He says it's uh, sexually tamer, but it's also a very different kind of movie, which is true. I have seen this one. So uh, it's got a stoic and mysterious hero, a great sidekick, and the triumphant return of Carolyn Monroe, which is always a good thing. It tries to unite desperate vampire lore from the Hammerverse and beyond. It also tries to set up what I thought would have been a promising franchise of its own, but unfortunately it fell victim to Hammer's financial troubles at the time, yeah. So yeah, those are great suggestions, Henry. Um, I, I know we'll definitely be jumping into some of the stuff, especially Chinatown and some of the later uh, Hammer stuff as well. I know we will be getting to at some point. So yeah, he says, keep up the good work. And then in his second uh, message, he says, uh, I don't use Facebook, so I'll keep using ancient technology to communicate. I too fell in love with the Batman animated series from the early 90s. It's actually all up on Amazon Prime now for members to view for free. Oh, interesting. Uh, he says, I don't know why, but some of the episodes have the wrong intro attached and use the later Superman-Batman intro. He says his kids are little, but they like it, and there's enough for us old people to enjoy, too. Yeah, I really like it. I like the um, German Expressionist and Art Deco kind of stuff, the sort of timeless uh, feel to it. He says, while I don't care about every animated DC franchise, I have thoroughly enjoyed Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, and Young Justice. If you want to talk about that stuff, I'll listen. Uh, he says, by the way, I don't care for Arrow, but I do like The Flash. As much as I love it, it Current, it certainly had a rocky start and has gotten more than a few aggravated face bombs out of me. I sometimes think that the characters make very stupid decisions only to enhance drama, especially when it comes to how and who gets to be in what secrets and at what obvious personal costs. There are also some science issues that I'm sure Daniel will get all up on if you ever go further down that nerd <laughs> hole with this. <laughs> People, people just think I'm I'm totally pedantic about everything on this show. Is that is that sort of the uh, is that the Jack? You've listened to it a bit. Is that the uh, way I, I come across uh, talking yeah. on the show? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Then, then, I, then I'm doing my job. <laughs> you know, I, basically my job is to bring the fun down all the time. These guys yeah. are having a good time watching something cool, and I'm like, no, but let's talk about how the women are completely misrepresented. That's, you, that's you'd be job. you'd be the guy that walks out of 2001: A Space Odyssey because. Um, 
the guy fills his lungs instead of emptying them before blowing himself out of the airlock. That'd be just... Nah, that's it. Over. I'm on. <laughs> come on! Come on, you were doing so great. Yeah, come on. It's, it's <laughs> I agree with a lot of that. I think the Batman animated series is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I just say, um, you know, original animated Harley Quinn is the, the original and the best. And that was an invention for the series as well. That's where that character yeah. originated from, yeah. She's the only Harley, as far as I'm concerned. I agree. I agree. I, I love I actually, that series. I actually haven't seen this stuff, so I'm actually like, yeah, let's do this at some point, Lee. Dan- Daniel and Shana should really watch, especially the episode where Harley Quinn teams up with Poison Ivy. I think that would be... Uh, <laughs> I, think I think that would go um, down well. I think Shana's seen a bunch of it because she kind of uh, had more of the comic book stuff coming up, but like me, I just didn't come up with it, so it was just not my stuff. Mm. Uh, so, so I just I've I've kind of completely avoided most things that people my age consider formative experiences in their childhood because I was reading uh, science fiction from the '40s. That was uh, kind of you know that tells you a lot about me. It's it's similar with me. I was obsessing over a particular science fiction show from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but it's the same sort of thing. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have any idea what you're talking about there, Jack. I, oh, it's, I a, don't know. Yeah. it's an obscure reference. I'll, I'll yeah, clear you no, in I later. Get it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate it. I, no, I, I, I agree with Henry about the, the Arrow and Flash as well. Arrow, I don't like Arrow, but Flash is a, is, a, is a fun show. Well, the first season is, uh, this is all I've watched so far, but I really got involved in it, and it, you know, it just became a binge watch on Netflix as soon as I started watching it. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's just very happy to be that, isn't it? Yeah. And, I mean, you know, there's some serious drama in it and stuff like that, but it's not so dark and depressing as, like, fucking Man of Steel was, which is just totally... It's, like, a totally separate DC universe, as far as I'm concerned, compared to that series. So I couldn't get into Arrow. It just felt like Batman, but less interesting. Yeah, and I think they've got a real real problem with the actors on that show. I think not all of them, but some of the key actors in that show are just awful. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, but Daniel and Shayna probably would enjoy, uh, especially the the Harley Quinn episodes in the uh, animated series, especially because there's actually kind of a connection between uh, the Harley Quinn and the Joker's relationship to Blue Velvet in a small way, at least. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, now you're making me have to go watch it next week, so uh, we'll see how that goes. Thanks a lot, guys. Just yeah. adding more to my to my plate. Yeah. Well. Uh, but yeah, there are a few uh, DC animated Batman films. Some of the some of the latter ones on Netflix right now might be something we uh, jump into when we're looking for a little break this summer between uh, series. So uh, I I think I think we will get into some of that, Henry. So uh, thanks for the suggestion. That's uh, that's awesome. All right. Uh, so we can move on now, and we can start talking about uh, anything we've watched in the last week or so uh, that we want to mention. And uh, I will move it right over to our special guest, Jack, if you uh, would like to start off. I've been mainly watching TV, to be honest. The only movie I've I've watched for the first time recently is, of course, uh, a movie that you guys put me on to, uh, Night Moves. which I watched because you were covering it in an episode where you were also covering uh, the conversation. So I thought, oh, I want to get to that one straight away, so I better find this this other movie that I've never heard of and watch that. And, yeah, thanks for for putting me on the night moves because, as I said, after I watched it on on Twitter, you know, I think it's probably a masterpiece. And uh, I'd never even heard of it. And uh, yeah, what a what a fantastic movie! That's awesome. Beyond that, what have I? Uh, yeah, as I said, mainly been watching TV. I've been watching the first series of American Crime Story about O.J. Simpson. Oh, yeah. I think that that TV series is doing too many favors to just about everybody involved. I think everybody <laughs> involved is being portrayed too sympathetically. Oh, nice, great. 
Nice, nice to hear. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, I saw that was a thing, and I went, you know, I'm just gonna skip that for now. <laughs> I've, uh, you know, I, I remember the OJ trial. Like, uh, I was, I was like 15 when that happened, and I, I that's, that's all I need to know about the OJ trial. <laughs> yeah. Didn't they just uh, dig a knife out of his yard or something like that? They did. Yeah, I can't watch the Naked Gun movies anymore the same way. Anymore, <laughs> no. no, they've been ruined forever. Yeah, I'm sorry, Leslie Nielsen. You forever, you your career forever died after Creep Show, and that's it. Uh, yeah, Daniel, uh, anything you want to mention? I've only got one, and uh, I only uh, watched this because of the uh, the big sleep from last week. But I actually did check out uh, Murder My Sweet from 1944, I believe. Oh, um, that's is, that's uh, pretty good. I think. This is starring Dick Powell. I wanted to see what Dick Powell did with the Marlowe role. Uh, what do you think of that, Jack? If you've uh, sorry, since you've seen it and you jumped in there. Not yeah, sure. I just I was just saying I, I I think that's a pretty good film. You know, Dick Powell's not bogey, but uh, on the whole, it's it's a pretty good film. I think Murder My Sleep. <laughs> I I pretty much completely agree with that. Um, it's it's a little bit. I mean, I I understand why uh, people don't remember Dick Powell's performance. I think that he kind of gives like it's a workman like performance. It's fine, but I think that. Bogey so outshines Chandler in some ways um, that mm. he becomes like such the definitive Marlowe that we just retroactively think of him as he was always that that Bogey's Marlowe is Chandler's Marlowe, and so I thought it was interesting to see Powell's interpretation. And I haven't read Murder My Sweet, so now I'm going to have to read the book to see how accurate it was. But I really liked um, some of the some of the imagery towards the middle. There's a there's a dream sequence, a uh, kind yeah. of dream sequence that's just uh, really fascinating for a movie made in that time period. And um, it ends with a, a silly love story. So I don't think that was in the original, but I guess I'll find out when I read it. But uh, no, it's the, worth the it's book, worth checking. The book doesn't end that way. Yeah, I, I didn't. It didn't feel very uh, Chandler to me. It's like, yeah, I can imagine uh, Chandler ends the ends the movie with like, eh, and then they get up, they get together, and they're they're all gonna go make out. It's a happy ending, you know. Mm. The, the some like it hot ending, as I would. Uh, the book's actually called Farewell, My Lovely, not Murder My Sweet. So oh, is it? Okay, yeah. Don't go, I, don't uh, don't go looking for Murder My Sweet because I I don't think there is anything apart from the film that was ever called okay. that. Well, okay. well, well. Mitchum also did Farewell, My Lovely, as well in the in the seventies. That was his first Marlowe one, right? I believe before he yeah, redid yeah, the big did the big slip. Yeah. No. Well, that's that must be the same story then. I've never seen that, but that must be yeah. the same story. Yeah, I haven't seen that one either. <laughs> I've but... heard I've heard that one was actually the good Mitchum Marlowe because they actually said it. Period. And, um, oh, really? oh, they said that one period. They said that one period. It's not Michael Winner, so like, fuck you, Michael Winner. Can I just say that right now? Michael yeah. Winner, go fucking fuck yourself. Like I, that yeah. was that movie was fucking terrible, and I hated watching every second of it. And I I, I, it. I second the motion. I hated it more the longer I went after recording that podcast episode. I fucking yeah. hate the 1978. Big I, I have I have no desire to rewatch it because it just kind of sullies it kind of sullies my. Uh, <laughs> The high esteem I have for Robert Mitchum when I think of that movie now. <laughs> so actually, I want to see Farewell, My Lovely now, but just to see maybe the breaking point before Mitchum stopped giving a shit for a while. <laughs> That's it. Next time we're doing Murder My Sweet and Farewell, My Lovely. Apparently, no, we're not. <laughs> I, think, I think we've had enough Marlowe. I haven't watched too much. I, I, I was actually um, catching up on some superhero shit I hadn't watched that had just popped up on Netflix. So I watched Ant Man with uh, Paul Rudd and Michael Douglas. 
I enjoyed it. It's kind of Guardians of the Galaxy light, if if that makes sense. Like it, you know, it's got more of that sort of casual, jokey nature to it. Just kind of fun, no real big stakes or anything like that, you know. And it's got all the interconnectivity to other shit in the Marvel universe. Uh, it actually kind of felt more like the uh, Marvel TV shows on Netflix, where they weren't overtly throwing everything in your face. Oh, here's the bigger Marvel universe. Here's the Avengers. Here's all this shit. I mean, the only Avengers references really are what's his name. Uh, Falcon or whatever the fuck. Captain America's sidekick, I guess, basically, in, in Winter Soldier. One black guy in the Marvel Universe? The one black guy, yeah, <laughs> other than Samuel L. Jackson, yeah. Yeah, it's actually enjoyable. Uh, Michael Douglas is awesome in it. Like I was telling you offline, Daniel, it just made me want to go back and watch more Michael Douglas films because I just forgot how awesome he was. I'm still yeah. pushing for Basic Instinct, by the way. So, listeners, go to our Facebook page and tell tell Lee that you want to you want us to talk about Basic Instinct. You don't have to convince me. We're going to do it eventually. <laughs> I, I already consented to it offline. I mean, come on, Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, Ant- Ant-Man's fun. It's a lot of fun. It's not thing you have to think too deeply about, but if you want a superhero movie that isn't depressing as fuck, as apparently the Batman versus Superman one is, that's one to check out Netflix right now. So, And I actually watched, uh, and this is one I didn't really want to watch, but I had some free time. I was like, okay, fuck it, I'll watch it. X-Men Days of Futures Past, and I really liked it. I really fucking liked it because it actually tied all of the fucking X-Men movies together in a really nice, neat package. Because I, I was going in thinking I was going to hate this movie. And I was like, okay, this movie really has to prove itself to me that it's going to work. And it actually did. And it actually tied together all the X-Men movies into something semi-coherent that I could enjoy and accept. And uh, I kind of wish they ended the X-Men franchise on this movie, and they're not doing that uh, Age of Apocalypse film, because the ending on this movie was really good, and I enjoyed Hugh Jackman as Wolverine again, and Halle Berry came in for like five minutes and a cup of coffee and said like two lines in the film. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it was it was really enjoyable. I was surprised how well it was done. And Peter Dinklage came in and did a hell of a fucking great job. I still don't buy that Michael Fassbender turns into Ian McKellen in 50 years. No. No, I've, I've seen the young Ian McKellen. He doesn't look like Michael Fassbender. No. <laughs> I mean, they could have thrown something in this movie where, oh, he has to go underground and get facial reconstruction or something. That... I would have appreciated a lot, but no, it's just like incredibly handsome Michael Fassbender who's probably going to look like that until he's like dead, and then Ian McCullen who's kind of looking like droopy dog at this point with his uh, jowls and stuff. No disrespect to him because I love Ian McKellen, but Ian McKellen is not Michael Fassbender and vice versa. But, uh, you know, I can look past that because the movie was actually really entertaining and a lot of fun. So, uh, actually, two big recommendations there for me for superhero films, which I usually don't do. So It's funny. I, I know I've seen that film, but I remember nothing about it at all. Yeah, I, I, there's there's nothing of consequence to remember, really, in that film. But <laughs> it is a lot of fun while you're watching it, watching it though. And, I mean, it, it tied together a lot of shit and kind of corrected all the wrongs done in X-Men 3. So, that's enough for me. Oh, yeah, that's right. It ends with a sort of a reboot, doesn't it? Like mm-hmm. they change time or something, and X Men Three gets erased from history. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I guess we can uh, move on now to our first film, and uh, we're going to go chronologically. So uh, we'll start with Blood Simple from 1984. I 
screaming, just doing my job, called a fringe benefit. How long you watching? Most of nine. They'd rest every few minutes and get started again. Hmm. Quite some. I got a job for you. It's in reference to that gentleman and my wife. The more I think about it, the more irritated I get. Huh? Just how irritated are you? and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, starring John Getz as Ray, Francis McDermott as Abby, Dan Hayeda as Julian Marty, E. Emmett Walsh as private detective Lauren Visser, and Sam Art Williams as Maurice. And Daniel, if you'd like to go into the synopsis. I uh, intentionally kept the synopsis vague, A, because the Blue Velvet one is going to be a monster, and uh, B, because uh, much of the joy of this film is going to uh, really be about like discovering the plot for yourself. So if you haven't seen the film, go watch it first, and then come back for the discussion, but you can at least listen to my teaser, so just to let you guys know. Abby, Frances McDormand, is cheating on her wife, Julian Marty, Dan Hedaya, with Ray and John Getz. Complicating this arrangement is that Ray works as a bartender at a dive in rural Texas owned by Marty. Sleazy private detective Lauren Visser, Emmett Walsh, informs the suspicious Marty of the bad news and rounds out our major four major characters in the film. Abby moves in with Ray, getting under Marty's skin, who escalates to home invasion in an attempt to confront the lovers. After some time, he reaches out to Visser and enlists him to murder the lovers. Visser agrees for $10,000 and thus begins a complicated series of events, misunderstandings, calculations, and betrayals that hinge on the tiny, unexpected details of life, including the placement of a cigarette lighter, the ability of a towel to absorb blood, and the apparent need to buy a bit more ammunition. The film ends on a line of dialogue revealing that in the continued process of portrayals and secrets, no one really has any fundamental understanding of what was really going on, except possibly the audience. Nice. And again, we'll throw it over to our uh, guest, uh, Jack, if you want to give your sort of uh, initial uh, thoughts on this film. I really love this film. I've, I've, I'm a huge fan of the Coen brothers generally, but uh, this is one of my favorites of their movies. Uh, it's the first one. Um, made on made on a shoestring. They got a, they got a budget for it based on a fake trailer they put together, uh, and um, yeah, it's it's an incredible piece of work. First time out the bat, you know, it's uh, it's got this wonderful um, sort of detached tone. Uh, 
the the, the plot. I love the way that the, the wonderful thing about the plot, the way it's sort of it's like it's like clockwork, you know, the way the way this incredibly complex series of misunderstandings they just pile on top of each other, and and yet you you, you always feel like it's kind of inevitable, like these people are all trapped in like a mechanism. You know, that's just going to carry on rolling, and they're all they're all stuck in it. There's there's some of the most shocking violence I've ever seen in films. Like you know, I've seen things that are gorier and more bloody, and where there's more protracted pain and stuff. But there's something about the way the the violence is portrayed in this film that is it's really like a gut punch. Which I think if you're going to do violence on screen, that's that's how it should be most of the time anyway. It's got fantastic black comedy. Although the tone is very, super, you know, on the surface it's very straight, but it's got this fantastic sort of dark, dark wit, you know, all the way through it. There's some nice themes going on in there, like there's there's a theme about misogyny and men that don't trust women. There's the wonderful inversion of the PI. The PI in this is about the sleaziest guy yeah. imaginable. There's nothing noble about this guy whatsoever. I, lo- I love the way almost everybody in the film is stupid. Um, and that's kind of a that's kind of a theme of the film as well because it's called Blood Simple. It's about the things that make people act stupidly: money and love and sex and stuff. Uh, I love the sweaty, you know, sticky atmosphere with the insects constantly buzzing and everything. And it's and the, there's one bit I particularly love, which is when Ray is uh, taking the dead body of Marty. So he thinks spoilers, everybody, and he's got the radio on, and there's this voice on the radio talking about the Jupiter effect and the planets are lining up. And uh, the the Antichrist is coming, and there's this wonderful feeling, like I was saying about the plot, like being clockwork, you know, and unfolding, and these people are trapped in it. There's it gives this wonderful idea of fate and destiny, and there's no escape. I, I love that feeling in the film. It's it's very uncomfortable, but of course it's meant to be. You you make a good point there, especially of uh, how all these all these characters are, seem to be stuck in this uh, this sort of predetermined destiny that the Coen brothers kind of make you aware of that with the uh, Four Top song, uh, same old song that keeps uh, popping up in different places in the film. Mm. Uh, it, it, it seems like it's, it's just sort of her- heralding that, that fact that all these people are stuck in the same old circles. I also like that you mentioned how fucking sweaty everybody is in this in this <laughs> film, especially the detective Lauren Visser, who is just although he's he's sweating like a fucking pig, you never see it actually seep through his coat anywhere. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Daniel, I'll, I'll throw it over to you for your sort of initial thoughts on this one. Fuck you two guys! You stole everything I was going to say. Oh, well, <laughs> um, no, probably the. Uh, I was I was going to use the word like greasy to to describe the look of the film. It's not just sweat. It's like this kind of sticky, awful, you know, like uh, uh, sticks to your bones kind of sweat. Um, the kind of sweat that uh, you know. I grew up in Alabama. I know this sweat. This is a very specific, you know, level of sweat that that occurs in the American South. Um, those uh, those uh, awful, awful rural hot days. Probably the one thing that I really admire about this is just how well it's executed in the small details. Um, it really is built on every moment makes sense. There's no sense of like, oh, somebody. I mean, people do stupid things because they're in a panic and they do something that's stupid. Uh-huh. They make mistakes, and it's like, uh, you know, the body doesn't go in the incinerator. If he'd just thrown Dan Hedaya's body in the incinerator, he sees the incinerator and doesn't think, I need to throw the body in the incinerator. <laughs> he, he he takes the body and wants to bury it. I, I don't know, because I have to say, I think the, the incinerator would be the first place the cops would look. Yeah, yeah but but I, I feel it's, like... It's uh, an incredibly dumb plan. But, I mean, that's that's right. what Dan Hedaya's character says to... Uh, uh, Marty says to Visser, isn't he? There's the incinerator. Yeah. And it's like, if his wife disappeared, 
you know, and the police had any suspicion whatsoever that he'd been involved in it, the first fucking place they'd look would be the incinerator in his backyard, you know. Mm -hmm. That's Uh, true, but I don't think that he's smart enough to know that the incinerator wouldn't burn the body completely. You know, yeah. so so no. I feel like he's 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 smart, but for a dumb reason. So like like it's and it's that level of like attention to exactly where these characters are in their headspace at any given time that I that I really admire. I I love that each individual piece makes sense, but the whole thing when you look at it from afar um, has this uh, completely irrational, uh, almost surrealist clockwork quality to it, and uh, it's it's completely involving. Like you're you're stuck watching it. In these details, in this kind of moment, um, it actually reminds me—I don't know um, if you guys—but the uh, the first like few episodes of Breaking Bad kind of steal from the same idea, where it's about like we got these two bodies we got to get rid of, yeah. and you know everything kind of follows from that. This is like there's a murder that happens, and then it's all about what happens after that. There's not like a you know it just the dominoes topple and uh, murder people in its wake. That's a good connection, actually. I never even thought of that, but now that you mention it, yeah. Um, I love and, I love movies that do that and stories that do that because I I have this uh, I have kind of a clockwork mind. It just kind of makes me happy in like this this like kind of interesting way when all the when when the filmmakers are smarter than me. I really appreciate it. It's it's actually something I I love when, when I feel like all these details actually do make sense. Somebody was paying that much attention, and for mm-hmm. this to be a first film, I think that's really remarkable that they that they yeah. did manage to to pull all that off. Like everything does kind of fit together. And you go, oh wait, he stole the gun at this point, and then they left it there, and then the guy thought that the gun was there, and that's how he drew that conclusion. And then when he realizes he was wrong, it's like actually the worst thing he possibly could have done. Like that, that kind of realization that's actually built on kind of like material reality is just, uh, it's what I love about the film. It's such a small little film. It's really just about these four people, but it's 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 just so well executed. Um, yeah, these, these I, Coen Brothers guys, they're going somewhere. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, they've got a future. <laughs> I, I love the fact that so much of the important information is not spoken. You know, hard, hardly anything that's of necessity to the plot is actually said out loud. You get to understand what people are thinking just through, well, it's partly through the actors, of course, expressing with their faces. And it's partly because the film is so precise. It's got this, you know, laser precision about putting you in the right moment so that you get what everybody's thinking at every given moment, that you you understand exactly what's happening at almost every point in the film without anybody actually... There's, there's no info dumps at yeah. all. And ha- nobody really has any conversations of any content at all at any point or any honest conversations at all. You know, I've never been in a situation like that, but I imagine it's fairly realistic. There's a, uh, there's a story about how the Coen brothers write, and uh, basically, because Joel and Ethan both write, uh, together, and uh, basically one brother will write to a point where he can't get any further, and he's like, basically he writes himself into a corner, and then mm. he hands it to the other brother and says, fix this fucker, and then, <laughs> like, so the other one then has to find a way out of that, and then, you know, kind of kind of work forward, and um, I think that's where some of the intricacy of the plots comes from, is basically like, because each brother kind of has to outsmart the other during the writing process. I was just thinking about that while you were talking about, like, the kind of crackerjack nature of it, um, that anecdote came back to me, so... Yeah, Jack rightly points out that basically most of the characters in this are, they're not necessarily dumb as fuck, but they're not big picture sort of people. Like, they, they just, and they're they're caught up in a really stressful situation where they're not thinking straight. I mean, I'd argue that uh, E. Emmett Walsh's character is probably the smartest out of all of them, and even he fucks up and makes mistakes. 
And I think partly uh, one of the reasons is, is because deep down he's a bit of a, if not a psychopath, at least a sociopath to some degree. He takes personal slights very personally, even though he doesn't show it yeah. at the time. It's the personal slights that uh, Dan Hiatus' character, Julian Marty, gives to him throughout the opening of the film, basically the first half of the film, that eventually sets him into forgetting what he's doing, making mistakes. Uh, I mean... He, he sort of devises early on that, hey, this is better if I just kill him and pin the, the his murder on the two lovers. <laughs> that way I don't have two fucking bodies to cover up. So he's smart that way, but at the same time, there's intent behind that killing uh, of a personal nature where it's like, you've been talking down to me throughout our entire relationship, and you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot you. I'm mad at you, and I forgot my lighter. I didn't realize that you uh, swiped one of my pictures that I had. That sort of sets him into desperation by the end of the film. So so even he's not immune to making stupid mistakes in this film. Even the smartest guy in the picture still isn't quite enough steps ahead to uh, basically get out of this alive. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's he's caught in his own passion, isn't he? Like they all are. He's, uh, as you say, it's the uh, it's the bruised ego. He's ego simple. Uh, I think Abby's probably the cleverest person in the film, actually. Although she never figures out what's going on, mm-hmm. but I think you see that she's actually a, she's never given enough Im- information to figure out what's going on. That's yeah. why she doesn't figure it out. And I think, in many ways, the fact that she's She's more intelligent means she's probably more imaginative, and of course that can that can deceive. She jumps to the wrong conclusion about Ray when he's talking about, you know, we've got to be careful now, and she sees the gun sticking yeah. out. She jumps to the wrong conclusion there. She gets it wrong, but she gets it wrong because she's over-analyzing and over-interpreting. <laughs> so there's a lot of intelligence there, but it's it's deceived her. But I think you see she's actually the cleverest person in the film when um, Vissa reaches round from one window to the next. He knows she must be in that next room. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really stupid mistake to make, and of course she takes ruthless advantage of it. You know. Yeah. Um, so I think she, ulti- I think ultimately the reason Abby's the only spoilers, the only person left alive at the end, apart from Maurice. Actually, Maurice is probably the cleverest person in the film because he's not involved in it. Either. Yeah, because he's like, fuck all you No, no, no. All you white people are, are crazy. Yeah. I'm, I'm staying. I'm staying out of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then Wal- in Walsh's character, Visser. Um, he finally does realize everything that's happened, but by that time it's too late for him. He's just, and he realizes it, and he basically laughs at it because it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is his one saving grace, I suppose, is, is the ability to laugh even as he's mm-hmm. lying there dying. Of course, it's not doesn't redeem him in any way, but you know the fact that yeah. he's able to laugh at it. I suppose as he's sort of staring up at the 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 condensation dripping off the underside of the. Sink, you know, and he's. I gotta, I gotta say, those pipes are pretty clean for an apartment like that. I must <laughs> say. Maybe they were just replaced. Like, really, what that means is, like, somebody had their like head bashed through that, like, not that long ago. They just <laughs> had to replace it. Like, they replace it so often, it never gets dirty. That's the. Uh, uh, it's it's a sign of the deeper systemic rot in the society. Wow! Well, that's deep. That's deep. Right look at there. that! Look at that! Jack comes on the show, and I and I raise my game. This is what happens. I knew it that's was too. Happen. That's too deep for me. I don't. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I will say there is there is actually a problem with the plot, and I noticed it watching it this time round. And I googled it, and I found out that other people have noticed it as well. And I'll put this question to the two of you: Who takes the money from the safe? Because Maurice gets a phone message on his answer phone from. 
Marty, after he gets back from the fishing holiday, he takes to give himself an alibi, saying, the money's missing from the safe. I know it must be you or Ray or Abby, because you're the only people with the combination. So that's before he has his final confrontation with Vissa, where it's implied that Vissa is going to loot the safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's after he's killed Visser, him. So, Vissa hammers the safe too, right? Yeah. So who takes the money? Um, My money's on Maurice. <laughs> maybe, maybe Maurice? Um, if, if Maurice actually... I don't know. The way he confronts Ray about it seems pretty sincere to me. Yeah, but maybe he was or, just... Uh, how, about, how about the blonde? The blonde that Maurice oh. was uh, chatting up in the bar that day. So Maurice and the blonde... Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Was she actually chatting him up in an attempt to get to the, the safe, do you think? I think she wanted the cock and the money. <laughs> well, he's the cleverest person in the film, then, obviously. Well, yeah, then obviously he's the uh, he's the Kaiser Soze of the whole plot, then. I mean, <laughs> all, there, was, all, there was this secret story that was happening in the background that nobody noticed for twenty years. Yeah, all, yeah. all we don't all we don't get is the final scene of him walking down the street with a blonde with a fucking briefcase full of money. Then that's <laughs> yeah, shit. That's a good point, Jack. I, that's something I never thought of either. That's awesome. Um, yeah, because it's either that or Abby pocketed the money and we never see it. Uh, That's the only other explanation that makes sense to me. Because yeah. Ray, Ray w- wouldn't have done it. No, Ray's too honest. He wouldn't have done yeah. it. Yeah. Because Ray is really, and th- this is an excellent performance, I think. Like, he is generally, like, shooken up by everything he encounters in this film. Like, yeah. just the fact that he's, he's, he's buried a dead body that isn't dead yet, so he's essentially killed someone, and he doesn't know the reasons why initially and then he suspects the reasons why, and even then he's wrong. He's, he's like the innocent victim, really, in this film. <laughs> but there's that, that, the amazing sequence where he's getting rid of Marty, and it's, it's, it's incredibly devised, you know, the mind that came up with that. Because that, you know, he's, he's burying the guy alive, because he's, he's fundamentally too nice a person to run him over or stove his head in with a spade. He can't, yeah. he can't bring himself to actually murder the guy. But at the same time, he's he's suddenly caught in this situation where he has to get rid of him. Yeah. So he's, he can't actually bring himself to kill him. So he just says, okay, I'll bury him while he's still alive. Well, so it doesn't matter the most hideous thing you could possibly do to somebody out of out of kindness. Although that is, does, that although, is fucked up. <laughs> although does he justify it in his mind because Julian Marty tries to shoot him with the empty chambers of the gun? Yeah, I think that probably makes it easier for him. Yeah. I mean, you think, like, if he had known that Emmett Walsh had shot him and that it wasn't actually his wife or his uh, his the, the other um, Abby, if he had hmm. known that, he might have actually just let the dude live, right? I think he just call, I think Ray would just call an ambulance. Yeah. If he walked in and found that, Marty wounded like that and he didn't have any reason to think Abby had done it, he'd just call, just call an ambulance. I agree. I think. Because he's totally not a bad agree. guy. No. I mean, you, you can tell he's legitimately haunted by... A, what he had to do, and he's back, and he's talking to Abby, and of course there's a miscommunication where he thought Abby actually shot him, and he still cares about Abby enough where it's like, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to go away together, but he is so shooken up, and it's uh, it's a really great performance, a very, very sort of tight, finely tuned performance. Mm. And he's sort of this this horror, because he thinks she's just going to, he thinks she's done it, and he thinks she's going to carry on denying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so he's kind of, it's like he's thinking who is this person, you know? And it's it's horrible because of course you know that he's completely got the wrong end of the stick and she can't put him right because she doesn't understand what his misunderstanding is. Yeah. It's 
it's it's hellish sometimes to watch it. You know, you you sort of scream at the television like you want to get in there, get in there and shake these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much of the machinations of the plot are just the self doubt and mistrust between the two main characters. Yeah, uh, because of the little seeds that are planted in them. I mean, it it just they're in a desperate situation. They don't know who to believe. They don't know who to trust. All these things come at them and. It's very believable. It's a very naturalistic kind of performance, and it does feel like a like you were saying earlier, Jack. Feels like a situation that authentically could happen. Like it, it feels like a real true crime kind of situation to, to yeah. a lot of extents, right? Well, the, 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 the stupidness of so much that everybody does is a key part of that because a lot of a lot of real crime is actually when you look at it, it's incredibly stupid. Yeah. What the things people do, but yeah, well, yeah, it's incredibly like kind of richly observed in the sense of like, I mean, it's it doesn't, you know, we we've been talking about these kind of noir films and these kind of things where you know people have like plans and you know this this kind of idea and they're they're kind of tough guys and they're kind of thinking two steps ahead, and this is like you walk into your boss's office where you've been fucking his wife and then suddenly you find his body dead and like what the fuck am I gonna do? Yeah. And so like oh I gotta I gotta like clean up the blood and then like the blood soaks through his shirt and he's like you know and it's and it's so um, richly imagined in the sense of, like, it's hard to imagine almost that this was written without, like, set design in mind almost. Like, like it feels like this very organic piece where, like, the script and the set design and the direction were all kind of one of a piece. And it just kind of comes from this this very, uh, almost almost like the film itself was grown in the dirt. Like, that's how organic it feels to me. Hmm. I also like, um, although this is, you know, their, their first film, and it's a very mature, like, first effort, and there are little touches of it that f- feel like a film school student puts their first film on screen, because there, there's there's a couple nice little flourishes here, but they don't beat you over the head with it, so it works really well. Like, I like the sort of transition between the two ceiling fans, for instance, where, you know, it actually switches scenes. I like where Abby is in the office, and then there's this transition to her falling into her bed. Oh yeah, um, that's really good. Yeah. Yeah, it looks really good. I also like uh, just I just kind of respect the fact that they set their camera up. I'm kind of wondering how they did this shot if they just waited or if they just had precise angles and reset the camera up. But there's the shot where it goes out from Ray's room to outside to across the street where there's the lights in the other house, and then it moves to morning. And the shot has not changed at all. Like there's no there's no sh- change in millimeters really that you can detect. So it almost feels like they had the camera on all night recording, <laughs> recording the shot. And I, I I really liked that. I was just like wow. Like who would who would even think to do that at, at that point? So um, there, there's there's a lot of like really nice little flourishes in this in this film. But at the same time, they don't feel flashy. They, they they still feel as grounded as everything else in the film. So, mm. and they've got a real um, something you don't often find with I think first time filmmakers. They've got a real grasp of all the other things that that go into making a film uh, an experience. You know, beyond the visuals, they've got a real they've got a real command of sound in this uh-huh. film. Like the the constant sort of background buzz of insects and the the machinery noise there's a lot of emphasis on machinery there's the windscreen wipers and the ceiling fans and things and they they've all got their own sound and they the amazing sort of crystalline sounds of broken glass and people stepping on broken glass and lots of foot footsteps and the the, the way people rattle doorknobs and everything that it's the, the sound design is really it's sort of 
it's unassuming, you know, it's not the sort of thing you notice consciously the first time you watch it, which of course is what you want, you want it to be working on you subconsciously, but it's obviously been very carefully thought about, I think, the sound design. Yeah, there's the muted um, radio or whatever that's playing in the background of like the uh, the sort of climax of the film where mm. Abby is in the apartment with uh, Visser stalking her, and you hear that sort of background noise is probably coming from another apartment, like right next door or down the hall. It feels like it's a world away. Like they're trapped in their own little situation, their own little world, and there's this other thing going on outside. Because that music is so loud that it's coming through the walls, these people aren't probably even hearing the gunshots going on in the apartment. Like, yeah. well, the I, they are, they're like those stupid white people. <laughs> silencers. Come on. They're breaking the plumbing again. We're going to have to replace the the plumbing under the sink again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think we can uh, move to a little bit of uh, trivia with this film. I, I didn't take a lot of notes for this one. Uh, I will say, before I get into this, uh, th- those fish on that table must have smelled like shit. By, by oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Hard working conditions for the yeah. cows. I mean, come on, uh, dude, put those shit on ice right away. You don't put it on your table, especially in Texas, in, in, that, in that weather. That's just how much was... of an asshole the Dan Hedaya character is. Yeah. He's yeah. just like, here, take some fish, motherfucker. Like, that's the, uh, that's his, uh, that's his strategy for uh, just pissing him <laughs> off one more time. Yeah, I know I'm about to pay you $10,000. I'm going to make everything smell like fish now. Congratulations. Yeah. And, oh, you know, hang on. I've worked it out. I've worked out who takes the money from the safe. All right, Mar- Marty does. That's what he pays Vissa with. He robs his own safe to pay Vissa the money. The phone call is pretend. He's pretending that the money's been stolen to give himself an alibi. Okay, I've Shit. just worked it out. Yeah, okay, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, because I was wondering because he says, "Oh, I, I, I uh, he has a line. It's like I know a guy, or I got it worked out, or something." And yeah. Then, uh, Ray goes to the club to get his money. He, op- he opens the box in the till, and it's empty apart from a few coins. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that works. That fucking works. Yeah, look at that. The we internet is wrong. There's something wrong it. on the internet. Jack Graham <laughs> solved it. Yeah. Jack, I want you to go back to all those websites you found that on, and I want to make sure you post a comment. <laughs> uh, let them work it out for themselves. Yeah, fuck, <laughs> uh, fuck the people. Yeah, uh, so this film was released on VHS in 1995 with a 99-minute running time, and it's been released a couple times. It was released... Theat- re-released theatrically in 98 as a director's cut, and this is uh, a 96-minute uh, one. Although, uh, it's weird, like, I was, I was looking at Ebert's, like, great movies review of this, where he was saying they were identical running times from the director's cut to the theatrical version, and I don't know if that's necessarily true. Um, I have seen both cuts of this film, actually. Like, I, I saw a VHS, VHS cut of this back in the day. And basically all the Coens did is they trimmed it a little bit. Like, they took a little, couple seconds here and there off of certain scenes, took a couple lines out, because they just wanted to pare it down and make it more clockwork, I guess, and make it even more slick. And it works pretty well. Like, I own the Director's Cut DVD. It's a bare-bones DVD that was released in, like, 2007, 2008-ish. But you can find multiple DVD copies of this. A little bit about the music on this. Part of the reason they did the recuts was to... Uh, Resolve a long-standing rights issue with the music. Uh, the original uh, Four Tops, it's the same old song, was replaced for a, a little while in some of the releases for, with Neil Diamond's "I'm a Believer," which <laughs> I I can't fucking. That sucks. That just sucks. Never replace anything with a Neil Diamond tune. Just no. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna don't make the jazz singer. 
No, 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 come on. I, I even like Neil Diamond, but that doesn't work at all in this, in this fucking film. The same old song thematically works so well because it just it appears a couple times in the film and it really does give that sense of all these people stuck in this sort of fucking circle they've made for themselves. But, uh, I'm pretty yeah, sure my old VHS had the four tops on it. Yeah, like the initial couple couple releases had the four tops and then, then it went out of, I guess, out of copyright or whatever, or right, you know, rights issues. Right, yeah. So they had to do that for a while. And then they brought it back. And now in the director's cut, it's got the four tops back in. The only other thing I want to mention is, and this is something I want to see now, in 2009, apparently, director Zhang Yumo released a loose remake of this film as a comedy, apparently called A Woman, A Gun, and A Noodle Shop. So it's, it's so it's a, it's a comedic remake of this film, and I really want to see this. <laughs> I, I thought of Tampa Po. Uh, but I, uh, I also immediately had the like, oh, I really want to see that now. It's probably not very good, but I really want to see it. It's probably not. It's probably like... Uh, it's probably really broad comedy. Like, I, I kept thinking, like, Stephen Chow style, like, like broad yeah. comedy is kind of what I'm, what it, what it feels like to me. It's probably like that, that uh, spaghetti, semi-spaghetti western that one of those Chinese directors did, which had Quentin Tarantino starring in it as a character. Uh, spaghetti, Django, something, Suzuki, oh gun, but, uh, I don't know what the fuck it was called. But <laughs> <laughs> The title reminds me of, um, you know in the, the, uh, the movie Throw Mama from the Train? Yeah. Um, Billy Crystal is teaching a, a creative writing class, and one of the people in the class who's a who's a, a, a salesman, he comes in with a script he's written that's called Ten Yards of Norgahide, A Girl and a Dream." <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> By the way, I'm trying to get Lee to do "Strangers from a Train" and "Throw Mama from the Train" as a two part. <laughs> they must be destroyed on site. So I uh, agreed to that one as well. What the fuck are you doing to me here? <laughs> Try I'm to trying me, to get, I'm I'm trying, trying to get the 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 lords uh, the hordes of Facebook fans to uh, pester you with all these great ideas I have, you know. So. You're you're trying to make me look like a dick. You're trying to make me like a dictatorial dick. Like pretty much, yeah. That's yeah, the, that's you the goal. son of a yeah. bitch. <laughs> oh, I do this like when Jack shows up because this will be our most listened to episode ever. <laughs> yeah. I, by by the way, do we have a Facebook group, Daniel? Do we? No. No, nope. don't, don't, don't. We don't have one, and if we do, don't come join it, because it's terrible. Yeah. Actually, yes, we do. We have an amazing Facebook group, which you should come join. You can just search for They Must Be Destroyed On Site on the uh, on the, the Facebook thing there. The Facebook, and, uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. we'll chat with you. It's it's great. Yeah. Yeah, come to Facebook. Come it. Come to it. Yeah, no one. No, I mean, c- come to this thing that literally every person on the planet with an internet connection is on. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fucking Neanderthals. Okay, so we can move on now, unless anyone has anything else they want to uh, add to uh, Blood Simple. I just wanted to say, do we do we think the affair between um, Ray and Abby has been going on a while? Because the way I—that's what most synopses seem to say. But the way I read it, it starts. In the car, and yeah. that's like the first time they've been together. So I think uh, Marty's jealousy is completely just in his own head, and he makes he makes that happen. He's got this guy following her around because he thinks she's sleeping with every man she comes into contact. He obviously thinks she's sleeping with Maurice as well, because mm-hmm. um, 
uh, Vissa says to him, you thought it was a coloured guy. But I don't think, there's no evidence that she's actually sleeping around at all. I think that's the first time, the time that uh, Vissa catches them. I, I, which I think I totally, is interesting. I totally agree. Um, I think it starts in the car. I yeah. think these two were flirting a lot. I'm sure there was, you know, long looks across the bar or whatever, but this is the first time they acted on it. Yeah, definitely. Just another, you know, mis- mistake by, by yeah, one exactly. of the characters, right? Yeah, I, I like that reading better because, it, it, you know, the whole thing is triggered off as a result of just this guy's uh, jealousy. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, and it wouldn't be the first time that a, you know, a spousal jealousy issue ultimately causes the very thing that it's meant to, you know, that that, mm. a, uh, that a spouse is pushed away and pushed into the arms of another person by the very jealousy that is caused by that. So, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, though I, I I never really thought about that. I always just kind of assumed it was kind of an ongoing thing. But I think you're right, based on that dialogue, that that might have been the very first time. But also, you kind of run into and uh, you know the, the the emotional connection might have been there long before. And, yeah. You know, um, ultimately, when you're talking about uh, you know relationships, marital relationships, and that sort of thing, um, you know sometimes that emotional intimacy is even more important than the physical intimacy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Explicitly, she's throwing herself. I I don't I don't I I haven't thought a lot about this uh, in my life. By the way, this isn't something that (laughs) that we've dealt with. You've never talked about this podcast. What the fuck's going on, Daniel? You're totally different person all of a sudden. Yeah, no, it's there. We go.
All right, so uh, we'll move on now to Blue Velvet from 1986. From the mind of David Lynch comes a modern-day masterpiece so startling, so provocative, so mysterious that it will open your eyes to a world you have never seen before. She and warm a memory through the directed by David Lynch, starring Isabella Rossellini as Dorothy Valens, Kyle MacLachlan as Jeffrey Beaumont, Dennis Hopper as Frank Booth, Laura Dern as Sandy Williams, Hope Lang as Mrs. Williams, Dean Stockwell as Ben, one suave motherfucker if I do say so myself, George Dickerson as Detective John Williams, Priscilla Pointer as Miss Beaumont, Frances Bay as Aunt Barbara, Jack Harvey as Tom Beaumont, Ken Stovitz as Mike, Brad Duroff, the great Brad Duroff as Raymond, and the great Jack Nance as Paul. And uh, Daniel, if you'd like to get into your lengthy synopsis for this one, <laughs> this, this is going to be fun. To, this is going to be fun times, guys. Um, so first of all, before I get into my synopsis, I'd just like to mention that I'm um, in honor of Frank Booth, the um, clearly uh, sensitive and caring lover. Uh, you know, the, the greatest lover of modern cinema. I'm uh, consuming a uh, nice 24 can of Pabst uh, Blue Ribbon. for. Um, just, Plus just, not Heineken. Yeah, not Heineken because fuck that shit. But, um, <laughs> so, uh, I would normally, uh, Jack does not know this, he doesn't know beer, but uh, this is terrible swell. I would normally never drink it. And the fact that I'm doing it on a podcast where no one literally will know that I'm not lying right now I should tell you the devotion I have to this show. So um, I, I will confirm that he is drinking a tall can of Paps Blue Ribbon right now. Are you ready? <laughs> We're ready. Do it. It's a, it's a sadomasochistic thing, isn't it? You're drinking it because you hate it, but you love hating it. It's something like that, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I, I'd, I'd rather drink that than Heineken. I actually would. I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, yeah. unless you get Heineken in a can, because it's not skunked, because... The alpha human lungs aren't shift. Oh wait, I'm Welcome a chemist. Welcome to the Beyond the Four podcast with Daniel Hamper. <laughs> My old beer-related podcast. Congratulations. All right, yeah. here we go. I'm now going I want to this, do. I want this uh, synopsis in haiku form. <laughs> I probably could have done it by the time I got done writing this damn Jeff, thing. You know, if you Jeff let me know Ray ahead of time. likes to watch. Uh, <laughs> Jeffrey Dorothy likes to watch. Likes to be masochistic here. sex and Don't sometimes engage in it. <laughs> okay, are we ready? Yeah. Okay. Jeffrey Beaumont, Kyle McLaughlin, is an effete college boy who is referred to his hometown of Lumberton, North Carolina, to care for his ailing father, and who finds a severed ear in a field while ambling along one day. 
We know he's in a feat and out of touch by his beer of choice, Heineken, which contrasts sharply with the bud consumed by most of the other residents of the town. One of those residents is police detective John Williams, George Dickerson, to whom Jeffrey brings the ear and whose daughter Sandy, Laura Dern, has something of an interest in the worldly Jeffrey. Sandy hears a bit about his father's work, by and by, and together they hatch a Hardy Boys-style plan to infiltrate the apartment of a young woman, Dorothy Valens, Isabella Rossellini, who may or may not be involved in the case. Spying on Dorothy from the voyeuristic confines of a closet that night, Jeffrey overhears a mysterious phone call from Frank Booth, Dennis Hopper, who is on his way over to her apartment. Jeffrey is discovered by the young woman, and she first threatens him at knife point, then demands that he remove his clothes as he has observed her naked. Intrigued by what she finds, she begins to perform fellatio on the young man, who then must hide back in the closet when Frank knocks on Dorothy's door for their scheduled appointment. Dorothy and Frank engage in ritualistic sadomasochistic sexual acts, while Frank huffs on a gas cylinder of unknown composition, most likely amyl nitrite, insists on being called daddy, and cries out, baby wanna fuck. Some violence and vigorous dry humping later, Frank leaves the apartment. <laughs> I'm sorry, can I just say that some sexual violence and vigorous dry humping later A might be bit. my favorite phrase I've ever written. <laughs> some sexual sorry. violence and vigorous dry humping later, Frank leaves the apartment, and dialogue during the experience explains that Dorothy has perhaps become suicidal over their repeated violent trysts. Jeffrey comes out of the closet, attempts to comfort Dorothy, and discovers that Frank has, Frank has Dorothy's husband and son in an unknown location and is threatening violence against him if Dorothy does not continue the sexual relationship with Frank. Dorothy attempts to seduce Jeffrey again, but when he refuses to engage in the sexual violence to which she has become accustomed, she rebuffs him and forced him out of her apartment. Jeffrey continues to investigate on his own, puts some faces together on film, and relates what he has discovered about Frank and Dorothy to Sandy. Despite having feelings for Sandy, Jeffrey also begins to engage in sexual relations with Dorothy, which become increasingly violent as he is drawn into her need for that kind of gratification. After one of these trysts, Jeffrey is discovered leaving Dorothy's apartment by the psychotic Frank, who leaves Jeffrey to see what looks to be a drug den and whorehouse owned by the effeminate and violent Ben Dean Stockwell. We also learn Frank's beer of choice, Pabst Blue Ribbon, which clearly marks him as the more base and lower class of the right and reputable bud drinkers of the world. After leaving Ben's, Frank and his crew take Jeffrey and Dorothy to an isolated field where Frank molests Dorothy and beats up Jeffrey. And I promise I only have one paragraph left. <laughs> Eventually, after Jeffrey finally goes to the cops, one of Frank's associates is revealed to be a police officer, and Dorothy is left bruised and naked on Jeffrey's doorstep. She is nearly catatonic, having clearly witnessed the incredible brutality, mentioning her husband Don and something about his head. Jeffrey returns to her apartment and discovers a grisly tableau and cleverly manages to kill Frank by gunshot. The film ends optimistically. The cops triumphant over the deadly gang, Dorothy reunited with her son, and Jeffrey and his family, now including the lovely Sandy, confident that the greatest evils of their middle-class suburban world do not derive from establishment values and oppressive conformity, but from monsters who dare to engage in deviant sexual practices. <laughs> nice. And uh, if only everyone could see how red Daniel's face is right now after laughing. <laughs> um, feel free to take a screenshot and include that in the... Uh... No, I, I won't. I won't go that far. <laughs> uh, but uh, again, we'll uh, go to uh, Jack as he is our guest and ask his initial thoughts on this film. Oh no, not me first again! Oh god, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this this is an incredible film. This is this is one of those films that's just you know it's just burned on my brain the first time I saw it. Um, I actually saw this. This is in some ways a kind of proto Twin Peaks. Um, and I saw this for the first time after I'd watched it. Tin, Twin Peaks is sort of my gateway drug to uh, to David Lynch. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of stuff in the film that I recognized from 
Twin Peaks in different form. But even so, it's you know it's a it's a shocking experience. And I watched it again for this, and it's all these years later. You know, it still is. I think it's one. I'm not sure it's actually David Lynch's best film, but I think it's certainly one of his best. Again, it's always called surreal. I wonder about that. I think it's more hyper real than surreal. And there's a lot of. I mean, I, I, it's such an incredibly deceptive film. You know, it's it's it tells you so much what it is on the surface, and then and yet, of course, it's also telling you that it's not that you know and, and you sort of invites you to look and that's of course one of the main things about the film the the voyeurism the scopophilia you know looking is an incredibly powerful thing an incredibly powerful act in the in the film and it's it's there to be looked at and it wants you to look at it and the more you look at it you more the more you see that it's you know it's such a weird paradoxical film because it's it lies to you all the time but it lies to you with this weird brazen upfront frankness and it's it's just a it's a phenomenon I really think this is a phenomenal movie. Um, yeah, I agree that uh, I, I can definitely see where you see, sort of see like the proto Twin Peaks stuff coming out of this film. This is the first film that people could like look into and go, "Oh, this is a Lynchian film," you know, as, as a as a term. Like th- this film sort of really sort of starts germinating those kind of themes that you see come in his later work, um, mm. as opposed to, like, Dune and The Elephant Man. Dune, of course, was a failure, and that was more of a studio film, and The Elephant Man, of course, was also basically a studio film. But this is this is the first film where you really start to see Lynch doing what he wants to do on screen. Mm. Yeah, I really, I really like Dune. Actually, I, I, I like that film a lot. I think it's got its problems, but I think, weirdly, I think the biggest problem is that the section with the 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 Fremen, I think they're called, in the desert. That that's pretty dull, and I think that's a problem with the book. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a, it was a, it was a financial failure. But I, I really like that film. I think the least impressive of his early films is The Elephant Man, and if you you know that's that's saying something because that's a really well made movie. Yeah, it's a good film. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it is the first of the sort of quintessential quintessentially Lynchian movies, isn't it? The yeah. um, the use of uh, that particular use of the color to create a hyper real effect and the use of tableau and uh, and stuff like that i would yeah. say I, I i'm not sure it's his best film i'd want to make a case for lost highway actually which is a film that a lot of a lot of people forget about but yeah um, about a lot of people are actually down on lost highway yeah i know i think it's a great film i think it could even be you know his best i'm not sure but um yeah i think that's a film really badly in need of uh re-evaluation of course blue velvet that happened to blue velvet a lot of people really didn't like it when it first came out mm-hmm. um and it's only really been re-evaluated in well maybe not recent years but since then you know yeah. and it's funny that there's a there's a quite good documentary about the making of blue velvet uh, called mysteries of love you can find it on uh, on youtube and one of the interesting things in there is that um, a lot of the original reviewers were talking about the film in terms of the, the problems being to do with isabella rossellini um, yeah. and I, I for me she makes the film she's the most powerful performance in the movie and she's the central presence of the movie so i find that inexplicable to be honest uh yeah i agree and i i I know daniel has some things to say with this one but i'll just start off by saying um yeah i kind of want you guys to go first actually okay well isabella rosalini she has even said in interviews that she felt like initially when this film came out in the reviews uh came out that she was responsible for all the bad reviews in this film. She felt, yeah. like she, she honestly felt devastated that she had ruined this film for David Lynch. And she was not the first pick for David Lynch. Like, David Lynch was looking at, like, uh, Debbie Harry and um, 
I can't think of the other one at the at the moment. Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren. That's right. Yeah. So he was looking for like established uh, sort of actresses to uh, approach this role, and Isabella Rosalini at that point had only done I think two films before then. She was a model before that, right? She kind of felt like she had given a weak performance or something along those lines, but I think she gives like a stark honesty in her performance that kind of almost transcends the movie in a way. Like it, it almost rises above what everyone else is doing in the film. Like she, she brings kind of a reality to her character that I think is almost in contrast to a lot of the other characters in this film who are explicitly written as kind of daytime soap opera characters to a certain extent. Like, uh, that, that's something David Lynch likes to do in his films, where he likes to sort of satirize the kind of uh, daytime soap opera, Leave it to Beaver, Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, mysteries yeah. kind of dialogue and characters. And There's um, actually a sort of a fake soap opera that absolutely everybody in Twin Peaks watches, isn't there? Mm-hmm. I can't remember what it's called, but there's a yeah. hilarious daytime soap that's always popping up on the TVs of people in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Uh, but I I love her performance in this. It's a it's a very brave performance. I mean, the, this God. was this was incredibly uh, sexually explicit for its time, and it actually still is. I mean, the people like the the person who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey would probably hide in the closet uh, <laughs> watching this film. I mean, it, it, like I I I told Daniel once that I read like the first third of Fifty Shades of Grey and. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I read in that is infantile compared to what yeah. you see in the, with this. Um, I, I did pretty much the same thing, actually. I read a, a, a chunk of it out of just pure curiosity, and uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the author of Fifty Shades of Grey doesn't realize that she's describing an abusive relationship. Uh, I don't think there's... I think with the wrong... It, I, I don't think David Lynch um, wrote a script about an abusive relationship without realizing it, but I think because of his incredibly detached... Um, manner of direction if he'd gotten the wrong person to play Dorothy or the person playing Dorothy had given the wrong kind of performance it it's possible that it could have looked like that but I think Isabella, Isabella Rossellini's incredible commitment to the role and the incredible integrity she gives and the incredible power she gives um, Dorothy that really um, that really avoids that you know you're watching an abusive relationship yeah. because she forces you to to know that and, and yet, of course, it's it's more complex than that, of course. Yeah, it is, and I I think I think in part that a lot of people, you know, they they maybe take more from the performance than what Lynch even intended. Um, yeah, I think that's quite possible. Yeah, I I think I don't think Lynch necessarily. I mean, I I could definitely see, and I think this might. I'm not trying to speak for Daniel, but I think this might be one of the criticisms he brings on that maybe this is a very... You just wait. <laughs> this is a very shallow and maybe simplistic kind of view of BDSM, sadomasochism, etc. I, I don't think Lynch was interested actually in that subculture so much as he was to use the imagery of that as, you know, as a sort of contrast to... The, the world that uh, J- uh, Jeffrey knew before he got into this investigation and walked out of his Hardy Boys mysteries life into what really is going on in this small town. But um, I'll, I'll throw it over to you, Daniel, if, if you want to start getting into this. 
Sure. Well, first of all, I'd just like to say uh, I, I agree with everything you guys have said, um, largely, um, in, in terms of the uh, what, what Lynch is doing in the film. I come at this from a little bit different perspective. Don't know that anyone on this podcast would ever realize this, but uh, I might be involved in some alternative lifestyle kinds of activities and communities, and uh, I view it through that lens. And I can't not view it through that lens. And this this film is uh, fundamentally misunderstands everything in some some really what I consider to be despicable ways. I think it's fair. I think it's reasonable for 1986. Um, I think that what Lynch has done is he's taken a lot of the uh, imagery that was available to him, you know, the kinds of uh, material that he had available to him in 1986, and um, has kind of repurposed it. But um, doesn't understand the psychology of it at all. Just kind of fundamentally uses people who are uh, into these things as uh, as ultimately the villains. Um, the two major villains of this film are are a gay man, um, Dean Stockwell's character, and a uh, a person into uh, into kink. And uh, those two people are murderers and rapists and terrible, awful people who have literally kidnapped a child um, to um, and further their drug business. And yeah. those are that's our representation of this of, of of gay people and people who are into kink. You know, I'm used to uh, TV shows and lots of films and, and that sort of thing where, uh, you know, think about every episode of, like, Criminal Minds or Law and Order SVU or whatever where, you know, like, well, clearly he's a uh, horrible person. He likes to beat up women and therefore he murdered them and cut them up in their, uh, in this basement. Um, <laughs> that's standard. That's normal. That's, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's baseline standard. Um, it's, it's completely um, – I don't blame David Lynch for that. But for, for – to, to attempt to – reach out to the psychology and then to just not understand it and to use it just as a visual metaphor, it's just, it's hard for me to watch. That said, I think Isabella, Isabella Rossellini is absolutely and fundamentally the greatest thing in this film. And her absolutely phenomenal and amazing performance that gets to the truth of this actually harms the film overall. And oh. the reason I say this is because I think she understands the psychology. She attempts to make this erotic. Right? She attempts to sell not just the, the damaged nature of this character, but the fact that why people would be into this and why... I don't know that Isabella, Isabella Rossellini is a, is a kinkster. I believe she is, based on the performance. If not, I believe she's a, a perfectly... Um, just a phenomenal actress. It just raises the performance in my mind um, even higher. But um, I also uh, believe that when you see... Uh, her performance, the way that she uh, speaks to, the way, the way that she interacts with Dennis Hopper's character, the way she interacts with Kyle McLaughlin's character, she manages to give uh, what's really kind of an incoherence in the writing a kind of emotional truth. And when she uh, raises the quality of the material and when you see the erotic nature of it, and then you start flashing back to Kyle McLaughlin's character, who is flashing back not to the damage that she's having, but she's flashing back to her in an erotic way. Suddenly, the imagery is not, she's being hurt, I need to go protect her, but suddenly it's, I'm into this, I need to come and, and save her, and, oh, by the way, I'm really turned on by this, I want to be a part of this subculture, and then to reject that because Dennis Hopper's character is clearly just a bug in the uh, in David Lynch's version yeah. of this. Though there's a clear parallel between the insectoids and the uh, the monsters that uh, would do these things. I just can't view this any other way. Um, and I, I watched this three times because the first time I watched it, I'm completely on Isabella Isabel Rossellini's side, and I'm like, these two are going to end up in a relationship together. It's going to be great. And then when the way the film ends, I actually had to watch it three times just to understand, just to get out of my head. And I read like Wikipedia summaries in terms of trying to understand how other people were approaching this. And so I have a very complicated relationship with this film because I agree with everything that you guys are saying. 
but it's absolutely damaging to to people like me. All right. And I'm sorry that that's that's my rant about this film. No, it's perfectly valid. Like I said, I I don't have as much sort of knowledge in this sort of uh, subculture and stuff, so I I wouldn't I wouldn't even be able to uh, approach this knowing what would be like considered offensive to to someone who's actually into well, this stuff. Well, you, you you your kinky guy is the is the ultimate villain. Well, I don't necessarily. Yeah, it absolutely conflates. I I I just kind of feel like. Isabella Rosalini's character, although she is also explicitly abused in a very negative way, she's also a character who's presented who is actually into this stuff. And if she was interacting with other people who are into this stuff in a positive way, it would be like a totally different movie, right? I think it, you know, it, it just happens to be the fact that Frank Booth is <laughs> incredibly fucking psychotic, that he is he is presented as like the ultimate negative expression of this sort of thing. I don't necessarily know if Lynch was knowingly trying to make any sort of judgments. I don't think he was. I, I, I don't. I don't think he was either. I mean, my point is not that Lynch is doing this intentionally. My point is not that. I think Lynch. I think that the filmmakers are doing the best they could within this context. And so, so I actually did. I actually did the slight bit of research where I read the script. I found a version of the script online, and wanted to see what was intended by this. And in the script, the uh, Dorothy character is kind of a nothing. Um, she's presented as being um, a uh, basically she's just driven crazy. She she acts randomly uh, based on the abuse that she's received. Now, on the pa- on paper, uh, this is perfectly fine because it's basically she's been brutalized. Frank is is a kinkster, but he's I mean he's not even I mean even the kink elements get toned down in the actual script. I mean it's it's uh, there are some so it's minor changes that change some of the some of the uh, the way that it, it comes across. When Rossellini performs it, she she sells the sexuality of it, she sells the pleasure of it, and when she does, Lynch sees something that's incredibly powerful, and then he starts using that in in the context. But it makes the desires that Tom McLaughlin feels towards protecting her, because he's again not visualizing violence and wanting to protect her, but he's visualizing you know his own desires. He's punching her and he's doing these things out of his own out of his own needs. And then at the end, he's he's portrayed as like he's gotten past that, you know. And uh, there's some there's some subtlety that like really gets into almost line by line, like readings and understandings of what this is. I identify with the Rossellini character. Like I identified. I I mean I was I've seen young women in abusive relationships, um, not to the degree of like having their <laughs> husbands captured. And that sort of thing. But it's it's very very common. Like this this is completely realistic. Um, mm-hmm. The way that I visualize this film is that Rossellini and Hooper, uh, Hopper, Dennis Hopper, had a relationship, had a, had a uh, physical relationship before. Um, she tried to call it off because she wasn't liking the direction it was going, and then he kidnaps her son and husband. And, uh, you know, the, the, the events that kind of start the film kind of go from that. That's my interpretation. There's not anything on, on screen that confirms or denies that. Um, mm-hmm. But that totally makes sense to me. I've... I've seen things like that happen. Um, it's it's highly unfortunate. It's just it's it's hard for me because like there's such a strong following behind the film, and there's such a strong um, kind of idea that when it treats the kink as a damage, when it treats the desire for this sort of thing as just you're fundamentally damaged, you're broken, you need to go to a mental hospital. It's it doesn't feel par for the course anymore. It feels deliberate, uh, pointed. Again, there are a lot more subtleties. I mean, it's almost—I'd almost have to go through line by line and kind of point out where it's where it does well yeah. and where it does wrongly. Um, it's it's a marker of the quality of the film. 
that I have this visceral reaction to it. It's because the film portrays this very well, and it's because Rossellini is so absolutely amazing in the film that it has this kind of strength at all. It's almost like a, a Sarah Jane effect from Doctor Who. <laughs> Jack hasn't said anything for a while. I'm, I don't know what he's going to say when I when I when he speaks again, but. Liz Sladen transformed the role of Sarah Jane just by being that amazing at the role, and the interpretation of how we feel about Sarah Jane's character is affected by the quality of the performance. And it's the same way here. If there was a lesser actress in the role, I would like the film more. All right, uh, Jack, uh, if, if you want to go to your thoughts on this, I think that's really it's really we're really into complicated stuff here. Um, I agree. The only version of non-standard sexuality we get in this is explicitly negative and that's that's all we we all that's all we get and yeah I, I i totally see how that's a problem and i totally see how that's threatening and damaging to people in a particular subculture i don't know i think part of this film is its project to discomfort everybody and to twist to put a twist on what seems to be any motive anywhere and anybody's feelings anywhere you know um i I, I don't am not think upset at anyone seeing... for liking this film, by the way. I'm, yeah. I'm not, uh, you know, that, that's not the, the, the point of that rant. I apologize if that's uh, how it goes. I think I, I've just, just really got to sort of concede everything you say and, and say, but it's still enormously powerful. I'm kind of lost now, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think it's fundamentally about kink or BDSM. I think I, I actually, I actually agree with that. It's not about people in a subculture. You can uh, take that element out of it. Like, if you just imagined this film without... So everything happens exactly the way it does in the film, only except for uh, there being a kind of kink or BDSM or dominant whatever element to it. Dennis Hopper's character is just coming and raping her. That's all he's doing. He's got her in this thing. He's He's just raping her. That's it. She's damaged. They go home. You don't have this um, cinematic element added to the film. Suddenly, the film becomes kind of about uh, Kyle MacLachlan's attempt to rescue her, and there's like white knight elements and all that sort of thing that come along with that, um, and his connection with her and all that sort of thing. Basically, it becomes the big sleep if Humphrey Bogart fell in love with Carmen Sternwood, and the you know that's essentially the structure this film has. What I the, meant really was I don't think that the the sexual interactions we see on screen are actually about BDSM or kink. I, I, I actually have difficulty associating what we see going on between Dorothy and Frank with BDSM or kink. I, I totally understand that the association is there and that other people might see it and that that might, might be damaging. Uh, I, in fact, I'm, I'm sure it has been. But I don't think that's what the film is trying to get at. I don't think that what we're watching is about play or about connection or about pleasure or anything about that. I think it's about the exact opposite. I think Frank's problem is that he is unable to make any sort of connection between, well, anything, really. He can't connect his emotions to each other. He can't connect his emotions to his intellect. He can't certainly can't connect to other people. He is completely, utterly, totally self-involved. So yes. what you're watching there, it is obviously a sort of a you know a horrible version of a power a power exchange relationship and the fact that Isabella Rossellini plays it as if there is a part of Dorothy that enjoys it that does cause I, I see the problems I see the problems because it's like well, you're portraying a cons consensual power exchange relationship as something that's inherently unhealthy I well, get that 
but it's also about it's also about sort of Stockholm syndrome or something like that. It's about abuse the, the way abuse victims sometimes try to curry favor with abusers. I think something you said earlier is very important as well. We don't get any details. The film is deliberately very vague about what's actually happened here. I think there are ways in which you could fill in the background that would that would make it worse or better. Yeah, that's that's sort of the reading I got from it when I was going into this, that it was kind of a Stockholm Syndrome kind of situation where maybe she was not necessarily into this sort of stuff before even any of this started, mm-hmm. that she sort of came into it as a coping mechanism for <clears throat> the abuse that she was under and the fact that this yeah. psychotic maniac is holding her kid and husband hostage and she needs I mean there there's mention there's mention made that just just briefly that she was suicidal and that basically the continued threat of harm towards her child and her husband which was what was sort of keeping her under under the uh, the chains of Frank basically and I I uh, I sort of felt like that she was trying to find some sort of coping mechanism to deal with this situation, whether rather than quitting on her husband and her kid, essentially. Mm. There are moments in, in her performance when Rossellini plays Dorothy as almost like she's in a dissociative state, um, which is something else that abuse victims do. Well, she, she mistakes, um, she mistakes uh, Jeffrey for her husband. Yes. Yeah, several yeah, times absolutely. back and forth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the in the um, I, in the script, you actually get a more uh, kind of background of what's happening. Um, so I'm not trying to I, I'm not I'm just letting you guys know since I did uh, I did check uh-huh. it out. Um, no, it's interesting. You get you get more. Uh, there's more shoe leather leather in the script. Um, and I didn't go through like line by line, but I kind of read through particularly the uh, those sequences. I made I really wanted to see exactly what was there on the page and what wasn't. The uh, one thing you you learn that the um, the husband Don uh, he was like stealing drugs from uh, Dennis Hopper and, and that sort of thing like there's a mm-hmm. like there's a, a reason I mean essentially um, I think the original intention was that Dorothy is being punished for the husband for Don not yeah. the other way around well uh, if you don't mind me just interjecting for a sec this movie was originally about four hours long before he cut it down to two hours <laughs> nice. Um, the, the script is long. The script is I, very I long. Think, I think everything in the scripts was basically originally in what they shot. Uh, a lot of that footage is lost now. There's some stuff in the deleted scenes that you see on certain DVD releases of this. But originally it was four hours long. He cut it down to two hours. <laughs> and it cut down a lot of the backstory on the film that made a lot of stuff a lot more kind of elusive and mysterious and... I think it actually kind of works for the film in a lot of ways because it, otherwise it just it's like a four hour by the numbers crime drama. Right. If you actually I mean, it, script, it, right? it definitely works on that. Um, actually, uh, I was never a big Twin Peaks guy. Um, I've, I've kind of seen a bit of it. I, it doesn't. Um, and I was telling Lee, I'm I'm kind of the worst person to talk about this because I I this is actually my first time seeing this film. And the only other two films of Lynch I've seen are actually The Elephant Man and Dune. So I haven't even seen the later stuff. So. Uh, Take me with a grain of salt as far as the the Lynch stuff concerns. Um, I it's not that I've been avoiding him. I just haven't like watched it. I, I feel I feel really terrible because I'm like, oh, I've seen a few. Like, no, I haven't. I really haven't. I you know. So um, I'm a silly, silly man. I think where I uh, kind of come down to is uh, it's also kind of the uh, 
the the uh, detachment that you have from the other characters that um, you know uh, everybody's kind of playing it. I mean, you say soap opera, I say um, almost <laughs> it's wooden. It's 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 uh, kind of deliberately 1950s Eagle Scouts. Like everybody's a 1950s Eagle Scout in a uh, in a children's movie, and then you get to this kind of like center of this like darkness and, and that sort of thing. And and for me, I, I think that possibly kind of where my visceral reaction comes from is that. Uh, to me, that's a that's a search for something more real. Uh, the beetles in the ground are more real than the firemen above. You know that they, they ah, are now, effective. You know. Yeah, I I think I think that's a mistake with respect. I really do. I, I it's very easy to read this film as being about um, sort of sordid reality underneath fakeness, uh, or you know the 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 fake real world and the the. I mean the 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 fake sort of pretend world of white picket fences and stuff, and then beyond that, there's the real world of the darkness and stuff. I don't think that's what it's getting at at all. I think actually what this film is saying is that well, it's I mean Lumberton makes no sense whatsoever as an actual space. You know the the only way it makes any sense is as a is as a psychogeographic landscape. You know this is this is a dream. This has got dream logic. And these two places, I mean, it's one of the things that people have complained about. They're saying, yeah, it's it's saying, oh, to Reagan's America, oh, yeah, white picket fences and smiling guys on fire trucks and Dalmatians and, you know, tulips and uh, all that stuff, yeah. Um, but there's a dark side. But the dark side is actually somewhere else. It's not in that lovely, shiny uh, white picket fence world. You know, the American yeah. dream is nice and safe and isolated over here, and then you've got other stuff somewhere else. I think... Yes, I I see that, but I think what the film is saying is that these two places they are separate, but but they're both equally real because it is incredibly fake the world that Jeffrey lives in. It seems incredibly fake. It's all peachy and keen and yeah. you know beaver and everything, but it it's it's got this incredible sort of heightened blankness that Lynch always uses. And I I think what he's saying is that the two worlds are both real. And in many important ways, they are incredibly separate. There's ways in which they overlap and interpenetrate, but they are also incredibly separate. But they're both equally real. They're both equally important. And crucially, I think he's saying that the one can't exist without the, without the other. I think he's saying that they're, they're, they're conditions of each other. They're inextricable. You know? Yeah, I like that. Of course, um, of course, he's also saying that the robins need to eat the beetles. Well, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's you mentioned about like the bugs in the undergrowth being Frank and the bad guys. Yeah, but in the same way, you know, the 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 robin turns up at the end, and it's the same robin that's in um, Sandy's messianic clairvoyant vision that she yeah. has about the the robins bringing love back to the world and everything. And it's got a bug in its mouth, you know. So it's saying yes, these things are both equally real, but they both depend upon each other, and in and in important ways, they feed on each other. You know, like you can't yeah. have the shiny, happy world where everybody's okay and living behind white picket picket fences and everything's nice. Nobody's got a pet dog and everything, and unless you also have this this other world, and in a in a very important way, the the nice, shiny, sunshine world is predatory upon the dark world. I like that. I think it I think it makes a point about something that every every one of us does in real life, where you know we live in semi stable, affluent Western culture where mm. things are generally pretty good, but just down the street, there's a murder happening. Just just the next town over, someone's being raped and murdered and thrown in a ditch somewhere, and mm. yet we still go on living our lives fairly happy 
knowing that that's happening in the back of our minds, I think this is partly Jeffrey's sort of venture into the realization that, yeah, that stuff is actually happening somewhere yeah. outside and of my wants, world. He wants to see it. He wants yeah. to see it. And as much as he might have noble motives, he also has other motives that are not so noble. I mean, it's one of the things that does make... I agree, this is a very uncomfortable film to watch. I, I, do, mm -hmm. I find it uncomfortable to watch. And a part of the problem, part of the reason, I should say, why it's uncomfortable to watch, but also incredibly thrilling and exhilarating to watch, is that it refuses to leave anybody's motives pure. You know, even Sandy is in her own way a voyeur. She's listening to her father in his office below her bedroom talking about murders. She's in a, in a, in a way she's getting off on listening to this stuff. Jeffrey gets off on it and he, he, he ends up wanting to be Dorothy's protector you know, the white knight mm -hmm. syndrome. But there's also a, a really there's, there's also a real way in which he wants to dominate her. Because uh, saving somebody is a way of dominating. And once he encounters that he starts to see Frank in himself, and yes. then you get the, you get that scene where he's crying on his bed because he finally realizes I've kind of crossed a line I didn't expect to cross. And yeah, yeah. Well, get that, is that your is that your perspective on what that scene means? That was what I uh, that's what I read from it that he he wakes up crying, basically realizing that he's kind of seen that yeah, there's some of Frank in me, and I'm disturbed by it like highly. That's what yeah, I thought. No, I I uh, I mean I guess you, you view it that way. I'm 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 down with it as well. I, I viewed it as uh, you know the uh, sense of I have these desires to to dominate in this kind of way inside mm -hmm. me. I'm I'm you know he has. I'm gonna I'm gonna say nice things about from this perspective. <laughs> and then um, uh, the the one nice thing I mean, and it is very inconsistently written. It's not written by from from you know someone who really understands the psychology at all. Um, it's it's very uh, me messy. We'll just we'll just kind of leave it at that. Um, in terms of the psychology, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But you do get a sense of warmth between um, Dorothy and, and Jeffrey um, mm -hmm. in their in their trysts. You get a sense of, that they are connecting on not just a, a interpersonal level, but they are connecting in terms of the desire. He has the desire to dominate, and she has the desire to be dominated. That's something I, I like in the film. I, I don't like some of the ways that, that gets executed, um, just because it, it doesn't... It's, it's just wrong, you know. It's, it doesn't make any sense, and it's and it's it's kind of harmful in its own ways. But um, you know, Jeffrey having a conflicted nature in terms of his, these desires, with his his desire to protect, but also his desire to to dominate and to, to harm on a kind of superficial level, that is a really difficult thing for for people to to come to terms with um, mm -hmm. in this community and. Uh, Finding the wrong balance is really, really easy. I mean, that's one of the challenges that you know people talk about. I'm speaking in uh, abstract, like I don't know any of this personally. I'm just going to say, you know, a friend of mine, you know, talks about this. <laughs> um, this is an incredibly challenging thing. You know, to to love someone and to want to leave bruises on them is a is not an easy thing to kind of tackle. It, it takes years for people to to kind of tackle these things. Um, and that's how I interpreted those things. And I, and again, to to just kind of the fact that those moments ring so true to me, is what kind of makes me dislike it more because it's just right enough to feel real, and then it kind of you know because I thought about this in connection to um, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about Jess Franco here we go Jack we're gonna talk about <laughs> Jess Franco um you know she killed an ecstasy you know has is is kind of fundamentally about this same trope right you know she's murderous and dominant at the same time you know um but you get the Harold Vernon character the Harold Vernon character who uh 
you know, wants to be beaten, but is also just kind of a decent dude, you know. And um, it feels less pointed because it is so obviously um, kind of arch and, you know, horror and villainous and not uh, because it isn't trying for a kind of psychological complexity. It's uh, It doesn't hit as hard. And I think, I think Jack, I, you know, I get that if, if the point of the film for you is that uh, everyone is supposed to be uncomfortable by this and it made me feel really uncomfortable, then it's an artistic triumph. So see, I, I agree with that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing that it's an artistic triumph. I disagree that it's a, uh, <laughs> from the perspective that I, that I have to bring to it because of my positionality, it's, uh, I think it's actively harmful. And um, that's mm. kind of the only thing, <laughs> that's the only thing, uh, that's really all I have to say about that particular topic. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting perspective, and I, I, I wouldn't want to argue with a with a syllable of what you've said. There you go. I, I don't, I don't think I have. <laughs> um, can I, can I, can I say nice things about the film? Yes, of course. Is yeah. it, is it, okay, not involving this topic. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of move off this topic. I think I've said all that I need to say. Um, there may be an essay coming. I had, I, I read a lot in preparation for this in terms of like what Isabella Rossellini thought about the role and you know that sort of thing. So. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm still doing some research, but I, I thought a lot about it. I might even buy her biography that she wrote in 1997 just to see what she had to say about this film because I couldn't find it online anywhere. So I think that the uh, the way that the film treats the kind of relationship between uh, Sandy and Jeffrey and Mike and Dorothy is actually really fascinating because if you view Dorothy as kind of um, Jeffrey's kind of reaching into adulthood. Um, however you want to view that. Jeffrey is kind of that for Sandy, right? Uh-huh. Um, because Sandy is kind of like, she's intrigued by this uh, slightly older guy who's kind of gone off to college and come back and is kind of doing these things. But, you know, the fact that he drinks Heineken seems like uh, kind of exotic to her. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, and then, so, so then Mike an kind earring, of, Got an earring. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, he he's so uh, he's so urbane and of the world. And... <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I I really liked that element of it. I thought that that was a really nifty kind of um, parallelism. There's a lot of parallelism in, the, in this film, um, which I'm sure you guys could talk about uh, more so. The the scene where um, uh, Dorothy is is left on Jeffrey's uh, uh, sidewalk uh, in his front lawn, um, mm-hmm. and I think that's even ambiguous about whether she escaped and was and had gone there or if she was dropped off. Um, it's kind of implied that it's not that far away. Yeah. And, in in and the, fact, sorry, is the, that I, is that not Sandy's front yard? I thought that was Sandy's house. Well, they go to Sandy's house, right? Because they go to San, they go to the police chief to tell. Oh, yeah, you're right. So, yeah. so they leave. That's actually Jeffrey's house. And um, yeah. the only reason that I'm a uh, stickler for that point is that, uh, again, in the script, he actually tells her where he lives. And he says, you can come to my house at some point. And then that gets oh, cut right. out of the, the final version. Um, so that was another piece of like shoe level, like oh suddenly it makes sense like that's why this happens because it just kind mm-hmm. of it comes out of nowhere which I think it works on that kind of nightmarish logic. Um, yeah, that, you know, they, they they run they run her back to Sandy's house. To and Sandy's house mother, to say, yeah. you're, you're, that's right. Yeah. And her mother takes it fairly well, by the way. I, I must <laughs> say, very stalwart of her to uh, not really flinch much. It's like I'll, I'll get her a coat. Yeah. I mean, so, so first of all, that moment where you see her. Uh, Haunting moment. Um, I found an interview where they were comparing it to the uh, the, the famous Pulitzer Prize-winning photo of the uh, little girl after the uh, uh, napalm bombings in, in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, um, that's actually that was actually the inspiration for 
her pose in that shot. And uh, I will I will mention uh, in case uh, either you didn't know, David Lynch has actually said in interviews that he had actually encountered a situation like this as a child, a naked woman dazed walking down his street, yeah. and that was also partly the inspiration for this. So I love the scene of Dorothy like clinging to uh, Jeffrey in the uh, house, um, yeah. and the, the kind of like uh, Sandy not understanding, and uh, you know th- there is a there is a kind of warmth to the way that the rest of the family kind of approaches it. Um, and I think it's intended as black comedy. Um, yeah. Kind of. If I if I because I do have kind of personal connection to the way Isabella Rossellini plays the character that kind of go cut against that grain and that's just kind of the way that I have to interpret it and the way she clings to him is is very it's very submissive like it's 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 almost it's almost heart-wrenchingly submissive to a dominant like it's it's uh, the fact that it's coming from that kind of place of abuse is is kind of the negative but it's um it's such a like viscerally touching performance for me that I was I was I just couldn't keep my eyes off of her and not because of like nudity or whatever it was just mm-hmm. that yeah. good um but the way that pains to make sure that her nudity wasn't uh, eroticized didn't they they <laughs> right. they say in interviews that um you know it's deliberately they 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 deliberately tried to make it not titillating right they yeah. wanted I mean, to make not, it look like not... meat what Isabella is Rossellini is... herself actually talks about what having uh, paintings by Francis Bacon in mind. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's 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 not shot and directed and edited in an erotic way. And then no. what Rossellini does is make it erotic in that non-erotic staging and presentation, um, which I think is where you get that kind of uncomfortable nature, and maybe where my discomfort comes from. Because so much of the idea is that you know you're in this kind of extreme situation, and yet it's it's eroticized. The fact yeah. that you get ecstasy from this horror, you know, sort of. Well, thing. and you 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 come from this from a different perspective, but there is a similarity to uh, how critics sort of responded to it back in the day, especially like Roger Ebert, who really responded negatively to it, where he he felt almost like David Lynch was abusing. Her as an actor, almost. Well, he. I read that. I reread that review. I'd read that review before, but I didn't remember it until I, I reread it after watching the film, mm-hmm. and I realized I had very. I had a very similar response to Roger Ebert at the. You know, like his response in '86 and my response now, which just makes me think that Ebert was probably a kingster. Um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise well, me. Well, yeah. Ebert, he 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 did the sort of moral crusade thing throughout the early '80s to mid '80s, sort of. Yeah, well, and he doesn't he really was, have much of a leg to stand on, considering he was writing most of Russ Meyer's films. <laughs> well, he he only wrote one. He only wrote Beyond the Valley of the Sun. Well, he collaborated with other stuff well, with Meyer's as well. Sure, um, I think that there's a there's a you know. A, one of Ebert's things is, you know, a great a movie isn't good because of what it's about, but how it's about it. And there's the yeah. the sense of, you know, kind of tone and in, in what you're what you're actually doing and audience. Mm. I think that there is a difference in terms of, you know, kind of what Russ Meyer's films were meant for and the way that they did things. And yeah, versus, but I I, I think like I think Ebert. I think that what Ebert was saying in his review, and I'm I'm sorry, Jack, I'm just gonna keep talking, is uh, he's he's arguing that the way that Isabella Rossellini gives an amazing performance, this this astonishingly brilliant, raw performance, and then David Lynch puts it in a film that is ultimately, he, he viewed the film as ultimately superficial and uh, meaningless. And I think that's Ebert not understanding Lynch necessarily, and I think that that's a criticism, but I think the idea of saying, like, you had this brilliant thing, and then you, you put it in this ultimately superficial film is a disservice to Rossellini. Now, I think comparing, as he does... 
you know, the treatment of uh, Lynch to Rossellini with um, Hopper's character to, to Rossellini's character is completely beyond the pale. Like that's yeah, absolutely uh, ridiculous. I, I, I'm just, I'm still weirded out to this day where I'm actually like siding with Gene Siskel and Pauline Kale, who actually championed this <laughs> film. And I just, uh, it just, it just weirds me out. But uh, yeah, that. Uh, that's something. Uh, <laughs> At this point, you should probably include a link to that review in the show notes. <laughs> I think I, I think it will. I mean, also, if you have like the DVD versions, they actually do have the Siskel and Ebert segment where they review the film. Uh, well, actually, it's not the whole segment. It's just Ebert criticizing the film. Actually, this is the only segment they put in the extras. But uh, I do I do want to mention a couple things here. Although this movie was not a critical success, it actually budgeted for six million and made eight point six million. So it did. All right, for its time. One of the cool little motifs I, I sort of picked up on in this, and I don't know if either of you guys did, but there, there's almost a, a doorway effect of where Jeffrey walks into this other world, and Jack's right, like, this world exists, it's right beside this world he, he exists in, but he sort of walks over into it while he's in the field with the ear, because the camera sort of focuses on that cut-off ear that's dirty and decrepit, and damaged, and that's where basically the film kind of starts. Like it, it just goes from there. It goes into the ear, and then you're on the journey, and then you come out of Jeffrey's ear at the very end of the film, that is clean and healthy and vital. All of a sudden, you're back into Jeffrey's world. I, th- I thought that was that was kind of interesting. This is almost kind of a uh, I don't know if it's explicit or not, but there's kind of a Wizard of Oz kind of thing going on in this, where you know. Yeah. Uh, He's or, going or into you're, another... you're between two ears, right? You're in someone's head. Yeah, and you know? I mean, there's a main character, Dorothy. Uh, her kid has a little wizard's hat. You no, know, Wizard oh, of Oz, maybe. That's yeah. kind of tenuous, but, uh, you know. <laughs> and clearly, Frank, 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 the name Frank brings to mind Frank L. Baum. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. Um, I, I don't know if it's just little hints he was thrown in there, or if it's uh, something... Just totally. All all of the names have this very uh, kind of traditional Americana to them. I don't know how you read that, Jack. I'm just you know not being American. I guess I guess I'm the only American on this podcast. I, yeah. Sorry, I I forget that that you're that you're a fucking Yankee. Lady, fuck. but, uh, Commonwealth, uh, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, Booth, of course, uh, is the name of the uh, the man who killed Abraham Lincoln, and there's a Lincoln Road. Yes in the film. I don't know if that means anything, really. Well, um, there's also a lot of uh, headshots in this film, too. A lot of people being shot or damaged in the head, like Lincoln was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, again, I think it's part of that hyper-real feel that, 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 that through that, that blank, um, that literalism right up on, this, on the screen, you know. Um, it's very hard to describe. I don't, David Lynch is fundamentally, you know, an, aesthet- an aesthetician. Uh, he he's not an intellectual or a didactic or a prosaic filmmaker. He makes films that are fundamentally supposed to be aesthetic. Mm-hmm. You know, he said he's a painter, and he said once that you know he considers his paintings a success if people feel the need to sink their teeth into them. So yeah, I I, I think he's he's very much an artist who just plays intuitively with what's going on is in in his own subconscious. I I agree with that. I like that. Uh, I I gotta say, like, what do, what do you guys think of like just how he sets up a crime scene, uh, where where Jeffrey comes in the end to back back up to uh, Dorothy's apartment, and the the yellow man, the, yeah. the detective is standing there lobotomized, 
uh, <laughs> and the and the and Dorothy's husband is laying there dead with his ear cut off. I mean, that's just like one of those one of those scenes where it's like you just it just fucking weirds you out watching. Yeah. Like I've never seen anything like this before in my life. But yeah. there's, there's a detective. He's lobotomized and he's standing there. He's not dead. And <laughs> and then then he knocks over the fucking lamp. Like, yeah, when his radio goes off. Yeah. yeah, it's it sells this sort of idea that this is not a a sort of that, that this does not just dream logic, but it exists in kind of this this. I don't even want to say hyper real. It exists in this sort of a world that operates by different rules, whereby you can be you know lobotomized, you're standing there and, and but but kind of operate, but ramrod still, and you know uh, it, it it kind of. Uh, exists in this idea that like if the mind is destroyed then the the, the base impulses are all that's left which are, you know again can connect to the uh, to, to the beetles in the in the ground and uh, you know that sort of thing uh, I mean I actually I, and I'm gonna say this to you guys now I actually like talking about this film more than I like watching it <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what what did you guys think of the uh, little and this is probably the most famous part of the movie really uh, other than Dennis Hopper's quotes where you know all the all the different stuff he says. Most mostly he says fuck or fucking in some some sort of way in most Here's of his Here's to lines. your fuck. Here's to mm. your fuck. But what what do you guys think of the uh, basically the little trip he takes Jeffrey on to uh, Dean Stockwell's uh, brothel slash drug den uh, where where they get in there and uh, he's requested to sing Candy Colored Clown. They call it the Sandman. Uh, of course, uh, the, uh, the Roy Orbison in Dreams song. I just love the sequence. I, I I know everyone sort of lauds it as like the most impressive and uh, memorable thing from the film, and I sort of agree with that to a certain extent. But I think it just kind of works as a as a really hammering over the head that Jeffrey is really in a different world at this point, where he's just really pulled into something that he is just no he has no way to deal with it. He's just mm. totally in a different world at that point. He's in a he's in a world where people just act on their ids, you know. But it, the, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to punch somebody, you punch them. You know, you just do anything you want, and it's in a. It, he's in a world that's totally well. I don't want to say totally free because I don't think these people look or act like they're free. But uh, he he's in a world where people do not restrain themselves from from cruelty, um, yeah. or or from anything really. Again, uh, in the script, it's sold much more clearly as a drug den. You see, like, there yeah. are, you know, uh, descriptions of like uh, people on beds with a uh, vomit around their faces and that sort of thing. Huh. Um, and know, I'm, so. I'm, you know, if we want to talk politics, I mean, I, I'm not sure I like. No, Jack, please, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I like the idea of that place as a depiction of what. Um, it's like when you're not emotionally and sexually repressed. You know, I don't, I don't think emotional and sexual sexual repression are good. So if that's what we're saying, it's like when you're not, then you know, I don't take issue with that. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't view that place as, as that. Actually, I would view. I mean, you know, no, again, you know, I would, I would view that as, uh, I, you know, that seems very much more clearly a this. This is kind of the. Where well, a it's the one gay character, so there is like this is what the, this is what the queers are up to. They're out there in their drug dens, you know, like raping people. Isn't that what all the queers do? You know, they've they've got they've got little children trapped in a in a in a uh, in a room, and they're not allowing them to to see their mothers. Yeah, sure, um, sure. That's that's what that's what gay people do, right? You know, it's 1986. We're a progressive era, you see. You know? I, I well, no, I kind of feel like in in some respects the film kind of actually criticizes like the idea of what 
maybe like a Reaganomics white American might think of gay culture as well to some extent and kind of makes it kind of... Because that, that sequence is, although it is kind of dark, it's also explicitly kind of fucking over-the-top and silly in a lot of ways as well. If you if you view this as sort of, um, you know, the, the fever dream of, the, of Jeffrey, if you view the entire thing as, like, you didn't find the ear in the... In the in the field, he basically just fell asleep in the field, and then everything that happens from there is just him dreaming. And then so he's this uh, repressed uh, white middle class American, and that's what gay people are doing in his mind. Then yeah, it's it's absolutely a complete you know denunciation of. And, Reagan. and, I, and I will I will yeah. say that there was an alternate ending where that was actually the ending. It was all a dream. <laughs> well. Sure. <laughs> well, I, I think it is all a dream, but I think everything is a dream. I think the beginning and the closing sequences are, are, are a dream as well. You know, I, I don't think it's it's real. And then he goes down into the ear stroke rabbit hole. You know, and then he has a dream, and then he comes back out again. I think, as I say, I think the whole thing is a is a dream landscape. Um, well, it, it begins and ends with the curtains, right? You know. Yeah. yeah. And you see the and it's it's weird. What what do you guys make of the um in in Dorothy's in Dorothy's apartment? There there's a there's a couple shots of the red curtains. Oh, they they are to me they are incredibly sinister. Like I, every time those curtains it cuts to those curtains ruffling in the breeze with the window open. It's like I, I don't I I I'm hard pressed to tell you why, but it, I get you know the hairs stick up on my arms and the back of my neck. I, I just find that so incredibly sinister. Yeah, because um, the, the the blue velvet and those are, if I'm not mistaken, also red velvet curtains. Uh, just the texture of velvet alone, like the way it's presented in the film, there's kind of an almost an organic, like alive kind of feeling to it, hmm. and it, it it almost feels like there's some sort of weird malevolent pre- presence in the actual curtains, like to some degree, like just sort of in the background of everything. Uh, two more details from the script just to just to enlighten this uh, moment. Uh, again, I, I did the research. I'm going to talk about it on the podcast. Fuck it. Like, <laughs> this is, um, you know, I didn't do this for nothing, guys. Come on. One detail that's uh, probably the most horrifying thing that I've read in anything in a while is uh, the the less agency-filled version of Dorothy that's in the script, the version not portrayed by Isabella Rossellini, right before uh, Jeffrey leaves the apartment for the first time, so after the big sequence. If you remember in the film, she kind of goes back to the bathroom and then kind of comes back. In the script, there's actually a scene whereby uh, she says... She's gone for a while, and then she says, I got rid of it. And then you kind of go in... And then you see there's a uh, an ear, a tiny human ear in the toilet, and oh. it's implied that she's literally like self-induced an abortion, like while he's been away. And there's also a, a subplot where the yellow man has also uh, been sexually propositioning and possibly raping Dorothy. Um, that's an element that's in the script as well, um, because oh. there's a conversation between them, um, and that's where the your husband is, has been dealing drugs and stealing drugs from um, Frank. That's where that comes in because he's basically saying like you have to fuck me now because I know this about you know and you know you're just you're you're just kept woman I'm just gonna fuck you and that's what's gonna happen um, it doesn't actually happen in the script but it's it's implied that it's kind of a threat that she's under another threat that she's under sorry um, bringing the house down that's what I do I was just gonna say knowing that stuff makes me glad that he actually cut it down to where, yeah. where it is now as as a film because it works a lot better when a lot more is ambiguous and watching it you can sort of piece together things yourself the the four hour version of this fucking film it's just like everything's spelled out for you basically mm. 
I wonder if maybe the the sort of the blank and the cryptic and the dreamlike style of this film that he goes on to use again and again is almost like a discovery, something that he happens upon as a result of having what seems like a much more explanatory and detailed script and then having to to chop it down to just the basic the basic series of moments and implications. That's uh, that's, a, that's an interesting point, you know, because yeah. I mean uh, that kind of reminds me of a. Uh, uh, Breathless, Goddard's Breathless, Breathless, where his style was kind of—he had to cut the film down, and so the the choppy editing style came out of just that need. This is more kind of sequence based as opposed to like kind of cutting within a scene, but um, mm. that would make sense—the idea that he already had this kind of dreamlike, nightmarish tableau style, and that the idea of like basically just cutting out all the actual plot details and just giving you the just the dreamlike stuff uh, would make sense. Mm. I, I like that idea. It's a bit like Lindsay Anderson's If, where it switches back uh, and forth in color, sepia, and black and white for no reason at all. And, uh, you know, critics have said, oh, isn't that interesting because of this, that, and the other? And it's just because it's it's the film stock they had. Right. Uh, uh, If is another one you have to do at some point, Daniel. Oh, yeah. I've never never seen it, actually, so, uh, you know, I'm down for it. That's a that's a. I, I have no business talking on a film podcast. That's 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 what you know. I haven't seen anything, you know. No, that's that is that's that, a great. That, that is a great film. Um, yeah, that you make a good point there, Jack. I think maybe he did learn a lot from this film. Like again, this was sort of his proto Lynchian stuff, where he was finally kind of feeling his own oats and doing his own thing. Of course, as he went on in his career less and less money was thrown at him, so he had to make his films at, at a much of smaller budgets and cutting corners. And, yeah, I, I could definitely see where he maybe learned from this film to basically scrape everything together to the bare bones and cut out all the fat and real, really put forward, like, again, you were saying how he's much more like a painter and he just puts those images out there for people to digest and take their own interpretations from. And I feel like a lot of his later films really do do that, where there's not a, explicitly any sort of necessary like uh, theme or anything that he's putting forth. He might be, but if he's doing it, he's he's doing it very very veiled. Yeah, he 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 really he is not a filmmaker who there's like people sometimes approach Lynch movies like um, they're in code, and if you can just find the key to yeah. the code, you know, you can unlock it, and then you'll find out what he's actually trying to say. I don't know what people think the point of that would be. You know, if you have something specific you want to say about about whatever, write an essay. You know, he's um, he he creates uh, he's a conveyor of impressions. And I think that really started with that that sort of fan the sort of fan theory thing where people are trying to uh, get crack the code. I think that really mm. did sort of start with Lost Highway to a certain extent. Like yeah, which that, is completely the wrong way to approach that movie. Yeah, which yeah, maybe isn't maybe that's why it's not as appreciated as it should be. Have you yeah. seen that that documentary they made about um, um, the Shining about people's critical yes. reactions yeah. to the Shining? Yeah, two, was it two thirty seven or whatever? Yeah, two thirty seven. Yeah, yeah, two thirty seven. Yeah, that that is fantastic, because um, there's like there's one one theory in that film that I think is actually kind of half right, and the rest of them are just batshit crazy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I, I love the way it shows people approaching the film and looking for the and of course 
I do think it's wrong to approach that again, like like with Lost Highway and with this. I think it's wrong to approach it like it's in code, and you need to decode it, and then you'll find out what what uh, Kubrick's well, trying to tell you. That, that um, comes from a perspective of like I'm looking for the answer. Like yeah, there is one yeah. way to view this, and that yeah. way is the the way that is intended by the creator. And uh, you know, I think I think you know, I I hope if David Lynch heard me shit on his film. Um, to, to the degree that I have, I would hope that he would uh, take it uh, as a, as a uh, as a good thing. I would hope that he would say, you know, well, you had a, an honest response to this, even though it was uh, negative based on hmm. your perspective. You know, the the whole point is I've made something that demands that kind of visceral reaction. Yeah. And, I th- and I think and I think that you know the reason that I you know if I didn't give a shit, I wouldn't have bothered. I would have just said, yeah, it's a terrible yeah. thing, and, you know, like like um. You know, it is an excellently made film. Um, it's almost like it's almost Jack, like Iron Man in that. In that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, all it's, the more, all the all, more toxic for being so well made. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Um, sorry, sorry, that's a that's not even a private joke between uh, Jack and me. <laughs> that's something that uh, <laughs> I don't think Lee has any knowledge of. Uh, Jack, the listeners are wondering. Which, the listeners this, are hold wondering. on, Jack considers Iron Man the most evil film in history. Okay. <laughs> well, well, I actually I I want to hear this now. <laughs> I wrote an essay in which I make that claim. I'm not. I'm not actually saying now that I believe that, um, but I, I wrote an essay where I took that as a premise and sort of to provoke a reaction and to try to support it. You know, it's kind of it's kind of performative. Uh, the, the essay does put that forward in the first paragraph and then makes a sort of a game, hopefully an informative and an interesting game of uh, trying to support that assertion. Yeah, it's called Solid Dick and it can be found at Erudatorium <laughs> Press. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I will say this now while I've got you on the the movie podcast, Jack. I I completely agree with. I can't disagree with a syllable of it, and yet I still <laughs> really like that movie. Like it's yeah. just, I yeah. mean, you know, like I, I'm I'm that that's where I am with it. That's that's uh, you know. And that's where I am with Blue Velvet. You know, I'm quite happy to cede everything you say to me about the problems with representation of kink and BDSM. Although, again, I reiterate, I don't really think that film is about people who are in the BDSM subculture or living a kink lifestyle. I don't think that's what it's about. But even so, I cede all your points. But I do have, this is just a film that works for me, and it's insinuated itself into my brain. Sort of, and it, you know, I'm never going to get it out again. And every time I watch it, I have this, as you said yourself, visceral reaction to it. It's a film that I experience on a very primal level, you know. Yeah, the, this movie burns a brand on your fucking neurons. It's just, it's, yeah. just, it's just stuck into your brain forever. I woke up in the morning thinking about this film, like, like, and and how I had no idea how I was going to talk to you guys about this. Like that, <laughs> that was that was how viscerally this. Well, film this, this, well, you this, certainly managed it. This, this movie. Well, I didn't though because I had like ten different ways I was gonna approach this. <laughs> well, yeah, this movie is like emotionally confusing to the extent where I can actually kind of sympathize with Frank to an extent because this guy is a total fucking monster and like Jack uh, aptly put out there that this is a guy who cannot connect with anyone else except for himself. He, he has no real connection to the feelings of the, anyone outside of himself. And this guy does not understand love by any means, but he experiences love to some yeah. weird degree. He, and he, is, he is in love. He's in love with Dorothy. Or, mm-hmm. or he is experiencing something that in a human would be love. And because he is a monster, when he experiences these things, 
he just breaks down into these emotional fits mm. of tears. And he, he's and, an incredibly emotional, incredibly sensitive, hypersensitive person. He's yeah. he's sensitive to every sip of beer he takes. He's sensitive to to music to an incredible degree. You know that this is yeah. this is an incredibly sensitive man. It's just that he also happens to be a psychopath. Yeah. So can, I, I, can I can I ask you guys? I, I had a I had a moment when I was watching this, and I don't know if this is like something that people consider in the film. So I'm going to ask you guys who know the film better. On my third viewing this afternoon, I kind of get the impression that uh, Ben was in a similar relationship with uh, Frank that Frank is in with uh, Dorothy in the film. It, that it, Ben it, was previously abusing Frank. I, I it's it seems like. It seems like there is a closer relationship there than just we're criminal compadres, you know, in in this town. Uh, it it really does like it's not spelled out to a certain well, degree. Well, but Frank's fetish is is the blue velvet, and he's connected that to the song. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's um he's ripped in the in the script. It's just a piece of fabric that he just has, but here he's actually ripped it from her from mm -hmm. her coat. Um, then it's the it's the Orbison song, you know, and then yeah. Afterwards, they they play half of it, and then Frank can't take it anymore. He's like, I can't, you know. And then he forces it to, and then he leaves, like in a in a, in a rush. Yeah. Like like there is some uh, traumatic emotional response he's having to it. Well, yeah, and yeah. Ben's and then he plays that song while he beats uh, the shit out of Jeffrey. Like, yeah, yeah. You, know, so. um, you can read. I don't know if this makes the film better or worse. It probably makes it worse, more malignant. <laughs> but you can read Frank as a repressed gay man. Well, I mean, yeah, he put he puts the lipstick on and kisses Jeffrey when they oh, take him out. They, in the they, right they there. exchange fluids. He's bleeding from the mouth after Jeffrey's hit him, and then yes. he kisses him on the lips, and they've they've smeared each other's blood all over each other. And he says, "I'm going to send you a love letter." He's talking about a bullet, but he's saying, "I'm going to send you a love letter." I'm going to send he you a totally, love letter, fucker. Yeah, he is totally eroticized and fetishized Jeffrey at the end, and then interesting, he 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 does show Jeffrey mercy. They don't kill him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting that. Why don't they kill him? Yeah, because I mean, they should have. Yeah. They would have ended all their problems right there. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's really that that's actually an interesting point, Daniel, because um, it almost feels like Ben has a power over Frank, because Ben's obviously not afraid of Frank to any degree at all. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is scared fucking shitless of Frank, but yeah. Ben ain't. So well, and if yeah, you, and if you do view kind of that there is some kind of dominance and submission kind of idea that's kind of permeating the film. And you could certainly say, I mean, um, you know, uh, Sandy is kind of subservient to her father, you know, in that, you know, sort of way that, uh, you know, she's seeking some kind of thing, that there are power exchanges going on all through the film, that the film, you know, uh, if you want to view it through that lens, I'm not saying we should, but, you know, if yeah, you want yeah, to view it through that lens, then um, certainly Ben is the, is the dominant to Frank, and Frank being the dominant to basically everyone else in the film. And that... You know, within the kink world, the, the domination and submission comes with the, the dominant isn't just taking, but giving protection and comfort and, and those sorts of things. Ultimately, the biggest sin that Frank commits in the film is that he doesn't provide aftercare for his submissive after he uh, has his family uh, <laughs> with her. Like, that's that's fundamentally my problem. You know, if he just provided a little aftercare, none of this would have happened. It's, you know, you got to snuggle. That's, that's how it well, goes. Yeah, so, so all Frank had to do was snuggle with a couple of people, and Daniel, <laughs> Daniel would have made this his top, one of his top ten movies of all time. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Actually, I, I did look it up. The King community has embraced um, certain elements of this film, um, you know, because it is one of the few, like, really decent, <laughs> you know, like, 
it's just kind of hot, <laughs> you know, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you isolate it from the kind of larger context, I mean, the, the, the King community is used to doing that, quite honestly, uh, because there are so few... Because they don't really have any choice. Because you don't have any choice, exactly. And so, you know, something that you saw when you were 10 years old and it was like that, that got me going when I was, you know, 10 years old, you just kind of like... I know it's problematic, but I like it anyway. And uh, I won't speak personally to how I feel about some of those things. Uh, we'll just kind of leave it at that because that gets a little uncomfortable. But um, on another, just uh, one more thing I did want to mention. One of my favorite moments in this film is uh, that uh, Dorothy removes her wig when she goes to change oh, yeah. before Frank shows up. And um, that's clearly... Isabella Rossellini didn't have that kind of hair that, that David Lynch wanted for the film, so she had to wear a wig. And so it's just kind of a it's a it's a very small moment, but um it implies that everything that she's doing is an act, everything is a performance. And there's yeah. such a you know, she wears a certain kind of clothes, she wears this certain kind of makeup, she changes her makeup, she takes a shower, she comes back, this is something she's doing for Frank. And that's very much a part of part of this community. I only wish that she had taken off the wig when she was with Jeffrey later. Like, when they were intimate, I wish you'd taken it off the wig, which would have sold that moment for me so much more, um, because yeah, it's I, such a compelling detail. I see that. That's, just, that's actually a good point. I agree with that. But, yeah, it's it, when when Frank first comes to the apartment, there is that ritualistic uh, aspect to it, where he comes in, and he's like, where's my bourbon? You know? She, well, he says, no, it's not It's not baby, it's daddy. Yeah, Titles it's not matter. baby's daddy. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Sometimes I'm baby, sometimes I'm daddy. You have to know which is which. He's ordering yeah. her around. He's yeah. making her getting his bourbon. This is ritualistic. He's used to this. You know, she gets it. She sits in. She knows exactly where the chair goes. She knows exactly where to sit. He sits there. He asks for okay, spread a little wider, spread a little wider. This is 100% something they've done many times before, and he wants her to get it right. You know that that's what's fetishistic about it. It's not even the violence. It's the ritualistic nature to it that mm. sells it as a a real experience because. Uh, Fetish comes from a lot of different places, but but one place, very specific fetishes tend to come from like a specific experience, positive or negative that someone has, and then they want to recreate that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's com- that's it's simplistic. I don't want to you know because it's not everybody's fetish, but that's where some of the more kind of um, perceived to be oddball stuff comes from. It comes from that kind of thing, and so if you were to view it. If, if Lynch is kind of viewing it that way, you can see it as he saw his mom naked at some point from some angle similar to that, and he's trying to recreate it and process through that. You can see it that way. I mean, I hate to psychoanalyze it to that degree because it's because it gets really problematic because it becomes like you're medicalizing someone's desires, and that's that's kind of it's kink shaming, you know. Um, sorry, I was trying not to talk about this anymore. Um, I just had a lot to say. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I'll, I'll go to just a couple more uh, notes here, and then uh, I guess we'll finish up. Isabella Rossellini uh, was actually naked under that velvet robe where she did the uh, rape scene, and apparently Dennis Hoffer was not aware of this when they were on set, <laughs> so he got a, he got the full view when she spread her legs. So there you go. Interesting stuff about the music in this one. Apparently Roy Orbison initially did not want his song used in this film, and David Lynch went through some sort of machinations to actually get it in. And afterwards, uh, Orbison uh, finally relented and actually shot a new video for his classic song to coincide with the soundtrack for this film. As far as Blue Velvet goes, they didn't want to pay for the rights to the the song, so they actually had a uh, long-time collaborator 
Angelo uh, Badalamenti, uh, who also did, of course, the music for, uh, I think, T- Twin Peaks and some other stuff for Lynch. He actually re-recorded Blue Velvet, and they actually brought Bobby Vinton in to sing the songs at lower octaves to try to recreate the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the original recording. And then they got to the point where the producers relented and was like, okay, we'll pay for the song anyway. So then they brought the real song back into the film. <laughs> so, uh, Can I say the score is brilliant? Like, I really love that score. Like, uh, I, I love, I, I just love that moment with... I was I was listening to it, like, when I was doing some of my prep work, I was I was just, like, listening to it over and over again, you know, on, on yeah. YouTube. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, Roy Everson's a favorite of mine anyway, so it's just, like, that immediately connects with me on a, on a visceral level. But also, one last thing, and this is probably one of the more uh, striking sort of motifs of the film, is uh, Frank inhaling from that uh, little tank he has. A- apparently, in the original script, he was supposed to be breathing helium, and he thought it was silly that his high-pitched voice that you'd get from helium, and because, of course, Dennis Hopper was uh, a known drug user at that time, he had just, like, gotten cleaned up by the time of this movie was made, he was like, why, why not make it amyl nitrate? Uh, which can sort of create a state of euphoria for people, you know. So that that is what he was going on, and uh, that that's essentially what is intended to be in the little aerosol tank that he's sucking from as he's engaging in his uh, sex acts. So. Makes sense. Yeah, I noticed uh, that it was helium in the script and uh, was going to bring it up and then forgot, so... Yeah. <laughs> How how do you guys think that would have worked if it was helium though, with his making his voice go like really high and weird? Do you think well, that would have worked in the, better? In the or? script, it's in the script. It's supposed to be the point is that he's breathing helium, and then it's 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 literally one of those kind of Lynchian like nightmarish details. Like it's just he's breathing helium, and then he goes, Rah! you know, like he's just sounds in this kind of creepy way. In fact, the uh, the descriptions of like the dream sequences are like you hear the helium filled voice of Frank, you know, and that's, yeah. that's the point. It's supposed to be that. It's not supposed to be he's on drugs. It's supposed to be just he's fucking creepy as shit. Like, that's the point, you know? <laughs> you don't drink in kink, first of all, and you don't do drugs in kink, so that's, like, one of those, like, elements that's just kind of like it It feels... I mean, it feels but, very but much Frank, like the abusive Frank's character would a, do. I mean, Frank's it, not it, a kinkster. He's a guy with with preferences I, that would be kinky in somebody, you I know, who, both. who was normal. I think he's both a kinkster and a uh, abusive douchebag. So you know, it's, it's kind of how you want to how you view it. Um, <laughs> well, I'm certainly not going to you know uh, preach to uh, the choir. <laughs> sure, sure. I think I think we can I think we can both say that like we're kind of saying the same things but different ways. I think that I hate shitting on this song. Actually, I I love Hopper's performance in this. No, this is this, I mean it's a great performance. Although um, as far as I'm concerned, this is Isabella Rossellini's world. We're all just living. Yeah. In, you know. Yeah. And and she's and she's the one who thought she was the amateur actress who ruined this film. When in reality, she was she's a model. Like, like yeah. Isabella Rossellini became a model at the age of twenty-eight. When most mm-hmm. models are like retiring, she was a she was a like a Lancome like spokesperson until she was forty-four. Like that that's remarkable. I just it's it's astonishing that I don't know. I I love her. <laughs> one day we're gonna do Death Becomes Her, and I'm just gonna tell you. How how much she meant to me when I was uh, fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, if any of you want to throw any final thoughts into this, uh, otherwise we can uh, go to the conclusion. But uh, I'll open it up. I'd love to mention the sound design again, as I did okay. with um, 
with uh, Blood Simple. You know, David Lynch is a filmmaker who always play, pay, pays a lot of attention to what his movies sound like. Um, and there's this wonderful... I think the guy's name was Jeffrey Splett. I could be misremembering that. He was the sound designer. Um, and he creates these wonderful ambient sounds. Like, you know, you um, you walk out of Dorothy's apartment into the, the corridor and suddenly you've got this humming machine-like whir, you know, in the background all the time. In the, and the, the wonderful machine noises outside the, the warehouse where you've got the silhouette of some great big machine on the, you know, in shadow on the side of the wall. There's, there's something that um, David Lynch puts in so many of his movies, this, as I say, this kind of undertone of ambient machinery going everywhere. And it yeah, always, well, when, when he, even when he goes down to the bug level... Basically, you're essentially yeah. hearing the sounds as the, as they should be like audible to that sort of level with with those with those uh, bugs running around and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It always reminds me of um, there's a bit in the novel One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey where the um, that's narrated, of course, by the the chief Chief Bromden, mm-hmm. and he talks about he talks about seeing the walls of the of the asylum come apart and seeing the machinery inside the walls like the entire world is made of machines just under the yeah. surface i always think that's something that uh, that uh, the, the david lynch movie soundscapes remind me of nice. i think that's it's fantastically atmospheric the uh, dorothy's apartment the color scheme and the set design made me think of uh, douglas Sirk films um which are all about repression and kind of social anxiety and, uh, you know, the uh, desire for kind of progressive things, which, uh, again, if you interpret through that kind of uh, lens that I interpret it through, uh, did kind of uh, lead me in almost the wrong direction. But um, obviously the the Douglas Sir connection also connects to, um, you know, the kind of 50s aesthetic that we're we're kind of going for. Um, The timelessness of the thing where everybody's kind Mm -hmm. of wearing 80s clothes and everybody's having 80s fashion, modern at the time fashion, but we're driving 50s cars and we're in this kind of 50s environment um, kind of makes it feel uh, kind of classically Americana in this. Yeah, uh, and you can uh, you can get away with that feeling in the 80s as well because, especially in the early 80s, there was sort of this re revival of like the 50s ideal to a certain extent where you had Reagan <laughs> coming back in and, and, and it, it, it just feels like there was a lot of retro 80s uh, fetish, fetish kind of thing coming back into the culture. So this is almost like a, again, like Jack was saying, hyper reality. This is almost a hyper real version of that kind of ideal, like put mm-hmm. on the screen. Because culturally, what what's happening in the culture? It's mirror, mirroring what's happening politically and and economically, which is that they're, you know, the eighties is the the great uh, reaction, the counter reaction to the sixties. Fuck the eighties. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you say what you got to say, but fuck the 80s. That's all I can yeah, say. Totally. I was just going to say I love the way it seems to be both the 80s and the 50s simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, I, I think we've uh, said all we need to really say about these two films. We probably could have gone much longer, but uh, <laughs> this is already going to be a long podcast as, as, it, as it stands. And uh, again, we will go to Jack. Jack, tell us where people can find you on the internet. Well, uh, I write the blog uh, Shabugan Graffiti. Uh, uh, which you can find if you Google it, uh, S-H-A-B-O-G-A-N Graffiti, um, which is part of Eruditor and Press, which is uh, a group blog run by Phil Sandifer, and there's me and Phil. We also have Jane Campbell writing for the site, and we have the, the wonderful guys at Pex Lives, the Pex Lives podcast, and we have uh, Holly, 
who also does her own podcast about the uh, Amicus movies. They're doing it. She and James Murphy are doing them all in order. Pex Lives is all the classic Doctor Who's in order. And you have my podcast as well, the Shabcast, which is just about whatever I feel like talking about at the time. Um, We've done 80s Jim Henson movies. We've done uh, Doctor Who. We've done uh, Dracula movies. We just do whatever we like. And, uh, yeah, you can find that at uh, just look for Shaboogan Graffiti dot com or eruditorimpress.com and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at at underscore Jack underscore Graham underscore yeah and uh, we'll we'll put all those links in the show notes and uh, I'll, I'll be linking to your stuff on the uh, Podbean page as well so you'll, you'll go under yeah you'll go under our links and stuff so that'll be good and Daniel where can people find you on the internet well, I've actually appeared on the uh, the Shabcast once, probably only once, never again. Uh, but, <laughs> never again. Uh, <laughs> never again, no. I think um, I've like you on more than once. And, and I actually, uh, believe it or not, I actually uh, got, a, got a guest post on a rotatory on press, and it was all about uh, the kink community, so I'm starting to feel a, uh, a pattern here. You know, but, uh, <laughs> um, it was called Happy Slaves. It was called Happy Slaves, and it was about Doctor Who. So, I also have a podcast, which no one here likes at all. No, Jack has listened to most of the episodes. Uh, called Oi Spaceman, <laughs> a Doctor Love Story. That's Oi Spaceman, all in word, at Libsyn.com. Uh, check it out. Uh, we talk about uh, classic and new series. The next episode will be about Mind Warp from 1986. If uh, anyone out there who is listening to this doesn't know what that is, um, it's the one where Perry leaves and Shana, my wife, who is my co-host, gets very, very ranty about sex. So it's going to be great. Um, that episode looks to be about two hours long. It's going to be awesome. Only that. And we and we don't really talk about Mind Warp. It's not even a conversation on Mind Warp. I, this might be our greatest episode yet. Um, <laughs> there, there's a content warning that's going up. I'm going to have to record a content warning because we literally start talking about masturbation in the second sentence of the, of the podcast. So uh, everybody go listen to that. <laughs> listen to masturbation. Awesome. Yes. Uh, yeah, okay. So uh, the trailer falling will tell you where to go to find all of our stuff. Thank you very much, Jack, for joining us. It was a, definitely a pleasure to have you, and we'll definitely have you back anytime you're interested. Um, Lovely. Thanks very much. It was, a, yeah. it was an honor to be asked, and uh, it's been great fun. Thanks, thanks a lot. Excellent. I really like this show. Thank you. And I think next week we're probably going to be doing Zero Effect and the Friends of Eddie Coyle. Yep. Uh, yeah. One that you love and one that I love, and we'll see how we feel about each other's uh, things. So, you know, it'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Daniel, for joining me, of course, uh, as always. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We will see you again, and we're going to go out with In Dreams from Roy Orbison, of course. There's no other way to go out on this pat- on this <laughs> podcast. So, good day, good night, whatever, everyone. We'll see you later. Goodbye. Bye. A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is all right I close my eyes Then I drift away
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For links to the host's other stuff, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can find links to the YouTube version of our podcast, our iTunes page, as well as our Facebook group, which is the best way to get in touch with us and leave feedback. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you!